All right, all right, all right. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to Back to Your Story, a podcast about real people and real stories. This is story number 37, and it's about a young man's journey of fight and survival and courage and the will to never give up, even when you're faced with death at your doorstep. Brandon Mao's story will blow your mind away. It was the first time I had ever cried during a podcast. I could not understand how he was faced with so many atrocities on his life, but continued to push through and continued to never give up. And even to this day, when death is simply waiting for him, he continues to fight and inspire so many people. This young man's talent will blow your mind away. Talent of living life. Talent of never giving up. Talent of continuing to push through. It was such an honor to have him on the show. I cannot thank Brandon enough for coming on to share his story. If you guys enjoy listening to our podcast and maybe you want to watch his story, because now most, if not all of our podcasts are filmed in the BTYS studios, you can go over to bit.ly backslash B-T-Y-S-T-U-B-E. Once again, that's bit.ly backslash B-T-Y-S-T-U-B-E. And the reason that I say that is because especially in this podcast, you get to see the real emotion for what it's worth. I cannot thank Brandon enough for coming on the show. It was a real honor. And without further ado, here's the story of Brandon Mao. From the land of mystery where dreams become reality always listening to stories from the past the present and the future this is back to your story All right, we're good. We're good. Me and Brandon just chilling. BTY, yes, on the mic, just killing. About to get down and dirty. Listen to the podcast if you fucking wordy. Let's go. I don't even know why I said that. Whatever. Fuck that. Let's roll. Brandon, how you doing, bro? Hey, I am great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, man. I really appreciate you making the trek all the way up here on, you know, I've, it's just, I don't even know how I came across your Instagram, but, um, when I started looking at it and I looked at your website and just everything that you've been through and your, your story, I was just like really blown away. I, I always love, uh, when people are faced with the hardest shit in their fucking life and they are able to turn that around and, and make something beautiful out of it. And you're a real inspiration to a lot of people out there, man. That's awesome to hear. Um, never did I think I would end up in this situation, but you know, yeah. here I am. Yeah, man. It's, uh, life is funny, man. It throws so many things at you that, uh, it's really hard to tell. I mean, I mean, if, even looking at everything that's going on with COVID when we started at the beginning of the year, I never, ever would have imagined something like this happening. Yeah. 
Um, and you know, that's, that's across the globe, but for you, your story, uh, for people just listening and tuning in right now, um, why don't you do a brief introduction if you don't mind? Yeah. My name is Brandon Mao. Uh, I from California grew up born and raised and was diagnosed as a diabetic at the age of three. And that eventually led me to be a hypoglycemic unaware diabetic. And I needed to have a pancreas only transplant to live. And it's been a year and a half since then. Holy shit, man. That is crazy. I mean, for, for, for anyone, I don't even fully understand everything that you just said. I know that, um, the little bit I know about you, uh, that's, that's a lot. And so kind of let's, let's break that down. Um, diet, diabetes, what exactly is that? I know it's a stupid, I don't even know if it's a stupid question, no, but I just, you know, it's a great question because there's so many aspects of it. Yeah. So we have, Diabetes in general, which just means that, or I should say just, it means that you are unable to produce enough insulin for your body to function. And that comes from your pancreas. Um, Type one diabetics mean that you don't produce enough insulin at all to uh, break down food and deliver it for energy. So you have to supplement that with insulin and injections or the insulin pump. And there's various different ways. Type two diabetics mean that your body isn't producing enough, but it can make up for it in other ways through diet or um, oral medication instead of injections. And sometimes uh, that can be reversed. So you don't have to become a type two diabetic and then switch to a type one. Wow. Um, you can reverse it. And sometimes, wow. And what, do you know what the, uh, the stats on that, how many people, um, I mean, how many people, do you know how many people every single year are diagnosed with diabetes? I don't know every year. Uh, I do know, uh, yeah. Cause it could be Google. I do know type one, uh, in general, it's about between 1.1, I mean, 1.2 and 1.4 million in the United States. Yeah. And then uh, type two, uh, if you put diabetes all together, they estimate about a hundred million. So um, quick, Daniel, right on this. Uh, yeah. New cases, like you said, one and a half million Americans are diagnosed with diabetes every single year. But is that type one or type two? I'm sure it's just um, diabetes in general. It says uh, right below, it says 34.2 million people. I hope you switch that. Let me read that. Let's go back real quick. 34.2 million or 10.5% of the U.S. population has diabetes. The annual number of children, adolescents between the ages of 10 and 19 years old with type two diabetes. Do you mind clicking on that first link, diabetesresearch.org? Um yeah, just roll that down. So, uh, what does it say? Scroll over. There we go. I can, uh, yeah, 34.2. So diabetes impacts all social economic backgrounds. So approximately 7.3 million people, um, have diabetes, but have not been diagnosed, diagnosed. Wow. That's fucking crazy, man. Okay. So it says, yeah, type one diabetes accounts for 5.2% of all diagnosed cases of diabetes affecting approximately 1.6 million people. Wow. So that out of all the people that are diagnosed, only 5% of them have type one. So most have type two diabetes. I guess that's what that says. Correct. Yeah. And I don't know where I have the number for a hundred million, but maybe that's worldwide. Maybe. Um, but yeah, so, uh, the type one is a very small population of yeah. diabetes. And then in amongst that is known as a juvenile diabetic, which is diagnosed under the age of 18, which I also am. And I was diagnosed at the age of three. Oh my gosh. Um, at three years old, if you look back at your, your life, um, I do you even remember that. Like, do you, do you remember like, what, what is that like being three years old? Cause you had to get shots, right? 
Yep. Had to get shots and uh, test my blood and my parents had to do it and, and they knew what was going on. Um, but the, I, the only thing I remember about being diagnosed was that I was taken to a hospital and was held down and had to get blood drawn. Um, that's the part that I remember about it. Yeah. And then other than that, it became such a routine in my life. I can't really recall anything specific outside of always wearing band-aids from yeah. uh, poking my fingers and having my blood tested. What? You know, I, about three years ago, I was in the hospital for about two weeks, three weeks, and, and I almost died. And, um, mo like I got so many shots on a day-to-day -day basis for my blood being checked. I had to get, um, you know, um, uh, I was given blood and it got to a point where I just, I didn't, I couldn't take anymore. I just would rather fucking give up than continue fighting being that young, your whole entire life. What the fuck is that like? Cause I, I give, like I shared with you earlier, I give my cat two uh, shots on a day-to-day -day basis and he's a fucking champ, dude. He takes it, but I cannot imagine being three, four, five, six, seven years old and going through that. What, what was that like? Okay. So I think a lot of it has to do with the, uh, what is a word I'm looking for? Um, kind of the, sorry, no, it's okay. This is, um, an effect of the medication that I take, uh, for the transplant. Um, the environment. So yeah. I think a lot of it has to do with the environment that you grow in. So like I was lucky enough to have parents who normalized it, who didn't make it seem like, Oh, I was this burden and, and all these things. So I took my in, uh, injections every day as needed. Um, my mom says that when I was first diagnosed, I would uh, try to put on long sleeves and pants. So wow. she wouldn't be able to do it, but pretty quickly I caught on that that was my nor normal. And um, it, I never thought really twice about it when I like cognizantly remember about it. It just was part of my life. Um, one of the things that would come up a lot was low blood sugars because if you want to eat enough food at the time, you would, could only dose yourself with minimum amounts. And if you ate too much, your blood sugar would be high. And if you didn't eat enough, it would be low. So you kind of had to always catch up with eating for how much insulin you took. Yeah. And so I remember always um, being told I needed to eat because I didn't eat enough at the dinner or uh, throughout the day I was uh, being too active. And then the only way to control that is with food. Yeah. Yeah. Um, first thing, talk a little bit closer to the mic. You can pull it towards you if you want to. Um, you know, I remember being a kid, um, I was skinny as fuck and my parents would always say, uh, you gotta eat, you gotta eat, you gotta eat. Right. Yeah. And I didn't think anything twice about it. Right. But for you, it, it could be a life or death situation. Your blood sugar levels get too low and, um, things start to fail and, and it's not a pretty situation. So it's a completely different situation when you look at your own story, your own life. I, I, I just, I can't even imagine, you know, for me, I personally have, I have fibromyalgia and degenerative disc disease. I face pain every single day of my life. I wake up in the morning in agony, go to bed, fucking same shit. Right. Yeah. But I fight through it where you and I are both fighters, dude. Um, but for you, it's a life or death situation. Um, what is that? What was that like? I mean, for you, did you, as a young kid, carry that like you knew that if i didn't do this i'm gonna die or how do you even process that yeah so it wasn't to the extent where uh it was like oh i'm gonna if i don't do this i'm going to die it was yeah. more like 
if you don't do this, you're going to have a low blood sugar and a low blood sugar basically drains your battery. It's like the energizer bunny going, going, going until it stops, right? You just die. You don't have the energy. It's because your brain shuts down and it has to restart and everything in your body does. And it takes all your energy away. And I never liked that. And so everything that I did was to try to prevent that from happening. And so it's like this really delicate balance uh, through your entire life of just living and then you add sports and you add uh, hanging out with people and you add friends and you add school into all that. There's a lot of pieces that you have to juggle and make sure that works um, in your favor so that really it doesn't become a life and death situation. Yeah. I mean, for, for people listening to it, you know, they have, if they have young kids and their kids are going through the same exact thing, what are some of the things that kind of pushed you forward? I mean, because you wanted to have a regular life. You wanted to be a normal kid. Yep. Talking to you, you seem, you're, you seem fucking normal, right? But if you peel away the onion, you are normal, but everything that you've gone through in your life is not the norm, right? What we call normal, mm-hmm. right? Um, uh, what, what would you say? What did you do? I mean, to say, okay, I want this, you know, to do this, but I also have to do this. Was there anything mentally yeah, I think like advice that I would give for anyone that has young people or just yeah. for people in general going through things, it's just knowing that it's something you have to deal with. And if you don't deal with it, it's going to get worse. And so in Facts. order to really like appreciate and understand life without feeling in, in constant pain is you have to push through it and, and live through it. So that if, if that is taking care of your kid and they're not testing their blood or you don't want to test their blood and stuff like that. You, you have to find a way to do it because if you don't, it's going to take its toll and you're not going to like the outcome that you have. So it, it's like, it, I look at it as an investment. If you invest the time now in the long run, you're going to have the best outcome. Um, you can have a normal life as normal as possible. And if you don't take that time to invest in it now, then you're not going to have that chance to look at the future. And that's kind of how I looked at it um, and how it was presented to me. And that's kind of what has kept me going. Yeah, absolutely. It, it seems like your supporting role, your parents um, were a huge influence on that. I mean, especially being a young kid, um, you look at any young kid, I look at my own self uh, as a young kid, you're a fucking sponge, man. So what you see around you, you take that in and you emulate that um, nine times out of 10, as a, especially when you're younger. Uh, what type of role did your parents have? I mean, because they had a huge, obviously they had a huge role. Um, what did they do to be able to manage and kind of give you the best life that you could have? Yeah, my parents are heroes, man. I got to tell you. So like when I can when I look back at what they did for me, um, I grew up in a small town. I didn't know any other diabetics. I was fortunate enough in third and fourth grade to go to a diabetic camp. And that was like the first time I met other diabetics and I didn't feel alone. And had my parents not looked out for me in that kind of a way, I think it would have felt a lot more solitary and like I was alone. Um, not only like did they do things like that and always took me to the doctors and made sure that everything was good. They, if um, at school, when I was growing up, so I was diagnosed in 1987, there were no such thing as like sugar-free. Yeah, um, that's so true. So like, um, or sugarless or, you know, like, um, so I was able to have Diet Coke and that was it. It was Diet Coke and water. So when 
uh, other students at school would have birthday parties and they would bring cake or cookies or whatever, my mom would always call their parents, find out what they were having, and my mom would make me sugar-free cookies. No or she way. Would make me, um, there we go. The ever so famous angel food cake, which has the you know the least amount of sugar that you can have and makes you feel normal. And so there are things that they would do to help make me feel like I wasn't different. Yes. And to have me included. Um, if there was ever like a pool party that someone would have one of my parents would be there to watch me to make sure I didn't have a low blood sugar because it wasn't someone else's responsibility to, to watch that. Yeah. Um, I played every sport you could possibly think of. Fuck and yeah. my dad was the coach. Um, so they played a very big part in my life without making it a big deal. Dude, It was just like we were a unit and we were together and it wasn't overbearing, but yeah. it, ma it made it a really great childhood. Dude, that I'm going to fucking cry right now, man, because... There are so many, and I, and I hate saying there's so many fucking asshole parents. It's just facts, man. And uh, me growing up in, in, in my own life, you know, and the things that I personally went through, to hear how supportive your mother and father were, it's 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 fucking amazing, man. Yeah. Because you, like you said, it. My parents are my heroes. There, I I don't know. Um, there are people out there, right? But if you put 10 people, right, how many of them are actually going to say that? I got to a point for me personally where I was like, I want to do everything different than my parents did, right? I love my parents. My father passed away when I was 17. My mom um, is still alive, bless her soul, and I love her with all my heart. But everything that I personally went to, went through, I have made it, uh, you know, a cognitive goal to say, nope, I'm going to do different to make my life better. Yeah. For you, and it's it's very rare out of the 40 or so podcasts I've done, there's been about three or four that actually say this, where it's like, my parents are my heroes. And that is so important. When my wife and I have kids, I hope, I fucking hope that my kids say the same exact thing. Um, it's, it's so vital to who you are, Brandon. It's so vital to your fucking own story. Um, so when you're having those birthday parties, when you're playing sports, when you're doing all those things for them to, uh, make you feel as comfortable as you possibly could be knowing that inside, yeah, you are different, right? But that's okay. Different is good, yeah. right? It, it makes us fucking stronger. You would not, unfortunately, you've had to go through the things you've gone through, but it would not make the person you are today. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Um, so did you, um, being a little kid, let's bring it back, right? Um, being a little kid, did you ever sneak a candy bar? Did you ever, you know, do, do different? If you don't mind me asking. Oh yeah. And I just want a quick note too. Yeah. My parents, they didn't know what they were doing either. You know what I mean? <laughs> this is just what they found to work. And it, 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 and I was fortunate enough yeah. for that. And so it wasn't like there was a book for them to read. No. It, so it, it's figuring out as you go. And, um, that, you know, we, we were fortunate that it worked. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, um, I would eat, uh, a, piece of cake or have a candy bar and stuff like that. But the repercussions were that I would have a high blood sugar and feel like crap. All yeah. my energy would be drained. I would feel lethargic. And so there was always a cost to everything that I did. But when my blood sugar was low, what I was able to eat was the candy bar or was a piece of cake oh, okay. or the cookie. So it kind of made up for itself. So it's it, a balancing it, act. It's a very, it's wow. a balancing act, but it kind of became almost like a punishment where I could 
only have sweets if my blood sugar was low. So it was never looked at as something to enjoy. Yes. It was looked at as like a chore. Oh, I have to eat this to make my blood sugar come up. And uh, I still kind of feel that way about like sweet food. Today. I get that. I get that. So let me ask you this. Um, if you, you know, your normal day, right? If you eat a candy bar, right? Well, that, that'll make your blood sugar go up. Correct. What does that do? Because we're talking about low, what does the opposite do? So this is how it feels to me. Think of it as uh, thick mud running through your veins. Okay. So your eyes get blurry, you lose energy, you become very lethargic, you get sleepy, you get crabby because you just don't feel good. And that's kind of what a high blood sugar is like. Um, One of the things that diabetics uh, or people who are around diabetics say um, that they always know if your blood sugar is high because you become crabby. That's one of the tall tale signs of uh, the high blood sugar. So, and there are things that you as an individual aren't really aware of because it happens gradually. And so, um, but those are the signs of it. It's uh, it's, it's, these are two different things. Fibromyalgia and um, diabetes are two different things, right? But it's, it's similar in the sense that when you are talking about uh, like your blood sugar being higher, lower, you know, whatever you, you become crabby and they know, right. The people around yeah. you, right. When I have my flare ups, which happen every couple of weeks, people fucking know the people around me know, and they know why. Right. And in the beginning it was like, what the fuck is Brock acting like this for? Why is he doing this? Right. Um, and, and like, especially my wife, she didn't understand it, but all these years later, she, she fully, fully, fully understands. And, um, you know, just, accepts it right yeah. because let's just be honest when you're feeling like shit man it's like the last thing you want to do is kind of be around people yep you know um and and like i said you know what you've gone through way worse than i could ever imagine um but it is it's it's perspective i don't know about you but when i'm having my shitty days and i don't know if this is right wrong or indifferent but when i'm in my shitty days like i fucking wake up and i feel like dog shit and i know okay this is gonna be a fucked up day um I like to have some perspective. I go, well, and before the podcast, I said, you know what? I'm, I'm you know, a white male born in Southern California. Um, you know, money in my pocket. I've got a beautiful home. I've got all these things, right? I could have been born in Syria, Afghanistan, Venezuela, um, you know, some places in Mexico. And it's not to put these places down, but even if you have nothing wrong with you, but you were still born in those areas, your cards are, your the deck of your cards are fucking so... Uh, it's it's in the complete opposite direction than right. we could ever imagine. And so for me, I like to go, okay, well, at least I am uh, blessed enough to have these things. It's going to be a shitty day, but we're going to fucking make it through it. Yeah. What are some of the things that you do? And I'm sorry that this keeps on going off. I was wondering, I thought it was Daniel, but uh, it was obviously me. So it's, it's different um, for me in a way. Uh, for the first 31 years of my life, I was a type one diabetic and I went through all those things, high and low blood sugars and all that kind of stuff. And now for the past year and a half, I deal with much different things. I don't deal with high and low blood sugars, but I deal with um, post-surgery transplant issues. So if we're referring to diabetes, since that's what we're talking about, I'll refer I'll refer it to that. And that's when you wake up and you, you have a bad blood sugar. It can be high. Um, and high means that your 
a regular person's blood sugar runs between like 80 and 120. That's the goal. You always want it in between those numbers. If you're high, it's like in the 200s, 250. Some people, that means five, six hundred. And that your kidneys are starting to fail. You're, it, wow. It's very similar. This is the analogy that I was given. If you have a high blood sugar, um, it's you have too much sugar literally running through your blood. And a sugar molecule is like a piece of glass. So if you have glass running through your veins, what is that going to do to your body? Yeah. What's it going to do to your eyes? What's it going to do to your organs? So over time, it takes its toll. So if you wake up from having that at night, it is it, it is a shit day. And all you can do is drink water. You um, correct for it with insulin. And then, like you said, you try to put it in perspective. You think, okay... Am I going to get to a point where I'm going to be able to be productive today yeah. or do I have to get to work and just push through it and get through whatever is going on and do that kind of thing? Um, before I went through everything that I went through um, a few years ago, for me, it was all about pushing myself. I wouldn't take the day off. I would just say, nope, I got things to do and I'm moving on. Like staying in bed was never an option. Yes. And I think that had a lot to do with uh, me growing up on a farm because there was always work to do. The animals didn't get a day off. Therefore I didn't get a day (laughs) off. And so I think that that kind of played a really big role in my life and this whole, like always pushing through. So um, today it is about perspective for me. If I wake up and it is just a crap day i think okay well at least i'm alive yes and that's kind of like that's the basics that it comes down now because i can't worry about everything else and i can't think about everyone else's problems because i have my own yes and um sometimes i can't push through it and i'll have a day in bed and i'll reset and then the next day it's good to go but yeah i mean it's all about um that gumption and yeah. what you're allowing yourself to do. Yes. So you, you can allow yourself to sit there and suffer and feel bad for yourself and be a victim of the circumstance, or you can kind of accept it and move past it. And that's what I try to do. Fuck yes, man. You couldn't have said it any better. I mean, that is so true. You know, when you're, when you're faced with things, it doesn't matter what it is. You can either face that shit head on or you can play the poor me role. Right. And it's obviously an ongoing theme in your life. So uh, you said that you grew up on a farm, right? Yeah. Where? (laughs) In um, Southern California in the Temecula area. Okay. Um, It used to be all farmlands. Now it's all houses and wineries. Um, But yeah, it was a chicken ranch and we uh, raised baby chicks to the time that they could lay eggs. And then we produced eggs and brought them to stores, grocery stores, uh, gas stations, drugstore, any anywhere you could, we we process and delivered eggs. So we wow. raised chickens from. Uh, you'd get them one day old, hatched from the hatchery, and then uh-huh. you'd raise them. And I remember playing with baby chicks, and then collecting eggs, and feeding the chickens, and then processing them, um, which is called candling. And uh, it's called what? Candling. Candling. Okay. Yeah. Um, because the way you would know if an egg was cracked or if an egg had um, blood in it was you used to hold an egg up to a candle to be able to look through it. And so it it does it the same way now. They run an egg over a light and you 
look at them. Now it's all done by machines, but yeah. that's how we used to do it. So you'd stand there and look at every egg that came across. Um, so you'd candle the eggs and that's when they would get washed and everything. And then they'd get packaged and we would put them in boxes and put them in our van and go deliver eggs. And that was my life. Oh my gosh. That's crazy. How old are you? Um, I was born there. Uh, so that was until I was 22. Okay. All right. And, um, and you guys just, uh, did eggs or did you guys do anything else? Yeah. So it was eggs. We had, uh, lamb. We, we would grow, um, some stuff, nothing that we could feed to the chickens, but like we would grow tomatillos. Sometimes we would grow corn, just kind of whatever we could do at the time. And then on the other parts of our land, we had cows, we had goats, um, and we also had a farm, uh, not a farm, a shop, like, um, what do I want to call it? A store really that we would, yeah. uh, it was drive through and you can come pick up eggs. And then that turned into like a produce store and it kind of grew and it was like a local thing that people would come to and get the fresh eggs and get their produce. And, um, yeah, so it was like a little family farming ranch uh, thing going on there. That's amazing, man. Um, and and did you guys obviously ate the stuff that you guys uh, produced, correct? Yeah, and um, and sold some of it. And the, the I grew up eating a lot of eggs. Okay, all right, all right. <laughs> so good. yeah, like it, it kind of hurts me every time I eat one um, from a store because there's there's no such thing as. There's no such thing that tastes quite as good as a fresh egg. Yes, yes. I just went to the farmer's market this morning and got some fresh eggs that awesome. uh, just, I mean, hatched, I don't know, just recently, right? And uh, there's a difference, man. It's so crazy to see, like, when you go to the store and it's, like, all white eggs, right? Yeah. And and then you got, they're obviously not white when they come out. Uh, it's funny to think, like, why did they even think about doing that? Like, why? I don't know. I don't even know why. But um, for for you right? Uh, eating all those eggs growing up on the farm. Did you enjoy it? Did you enjoy bringing friends over? What was that experience like? Yeah. I can't imagine what it Thank was you. like from uh, like friends perspective when they would come over. Cause I was used to it. I lived, I lived on the ranch, you know what I mean? Um, but I cannot think of a better childhood. Really. I, I did nothing but enjoy life. I liked collecting eggs. I liked, um, candling them. I loved delivering them. Like it was fun for me. And then a little bit later in life, I started like raising other birds, like finches and cockatiels and all Whoa. that kind of stuff. So like I was able to really kind of do what I want and, and, and enjoyed it. Um, yeah, I can't, I, I really, I can't say anything bad about my childhood. It was, it was awesome. That's so cool. Um, we were talking about the, uh, why are eggs white? He brought it up because the short answer is that eggs, uh, white turn white or egg whites turn white because chemical reaction takes place when the protein in the egg white heats up. I think that's egg whites. <laughs> I think it's cause they bleach them. Oh, right. you, okay. So you want to know why the the shells are white? Yeah. The egg shells? Okay. So it depends on the breed of chicken. Okay. And so um, w what sells the best and what are the most inexpensive to process are white eggs because oh. the, the chicken has been bred specifically to lay the eggs. Then you have brown eggs and those come from different chickens and then you okay. have eggs of every different color. But the issue is those, um, the different colored eggs besides white and brown aren't... Um, they're not bred to be able to produce an egg every 24 to 28 hours. So you don't get as much of a production. So it costs more to feed them. And as a farm, you can't make money off that because okay. you make money on the eggs. You need the type of chicken that can do it. Plus people like white, clean eggs. Yeah. Um, and so that's another reason why 
the commonality is a white egg. That's so weird. Is that why like salmon is pink? Just because it's aesthetically pleasing, even though salmon isn't actually pink? I guess so, right? Yeah. If if they're yeah. raised, yeah, I think so. I I believe that if they're raised on on a farm, they're not pink and it's dyed. But in nature, generally, um, yeah, they're pinker. It's true. What they eat. Yeah, yeah. Because I just brought uh, bought Alaskan wild caught um, today at the, at the farmer's market and just myself, I've gone up to Alaska fished. I've, you know, brought back probably 40 pounds of fresh Alaskan salmon and halibut. And it was, yeah, beautiful, beautiful color. So I don't know if it's the same, but I always thought that eggs were white cause they bleached them, but mm-hmm. I guess, um, you're saying that it's not. So there we go. Um, all right. So let's kind of bring it back to your story. So you're, you're, you're going through, through all this, um, relationships, right? Uh, your, your friends, family, everyone, you know, knew everything you go into and they, and they respect that. Right. Um, what happened? Why did you have to get the, the transplant? Okay. So one of the things that people weren't really aware of was my diabetes. Okay. Um, it is considered what they call an invisible illness because yeah. you don't see it, but yeah. you have it right. Um, and I wouldn't let people know because I, it was so such a normal part of my life. So the people that needed to know knew um, because in case of an emergency, teachers and and things like that. But later in life, I didn't want to tell work because if something would happen, it um, or if I wasn't as productive, then they would have a reason to blame it on. Oh, you're a diabetic. And there's um, something wrong with you. And I, I never wanted that. Um, the, the ability for someone to look down on me because of something that's wrong. Um, I just looked at it as something I could always push through and I was able to always do that until June of 2015 when I was in law school and I had some terrible pain in my left side and uh, I waited too long <laughs> and oh. I ended up needing to go to the hospital and it turned out that I had two kidney stones the size of my thumbnail. Wait, what? Yeah. Like your your thumbnail, yep. literal thumbnail. <gasps> uh, one was lodged in my ureter, which is the thing in your kidney that lets the urine drain to the bladder, <sighs> and so that's where the pain was coming from. And because I waited so long, I was septic, and uh, so I showed up at the hospital. They did a CT scan, and they ran back, and they're like, "You have these kidney stones, and you're septic, and all that <sighs> kind of stuff." And so. They were going to take me back to emergency surgery. And I was like, well, who does the surgery? And they're like, usually a urologist, but we have a general surgeon on call. And I was like, well, what's the difference? And they were explaining like what they do. They um, take a scope and they take lasers and they go up your dick, yeah. through your bladder, up your ureter. And I was like, does the general surgeon do this often? And they're like, well, the urologist really specialized. I was like, oh, can we, how, when can we get a urologist yes, yes. here, right? And so it wasn't until the next morning. And I was like, well, am I going to be okay? They're like, we'll watch you. So anyways, I, I was able to get a urologist to do the surgery. Okay. They were able to get rid of both kidney stones. But for whatever reason, it didn't quite work. Um, when they said, oh, everything's good to go. And after that is when I kind of lost control of my diabetes. I no longer was considered a well-controlled diabetic. Um, I became uncontrolled, meaning no matter what I ate, no matter what insulin I took, no matter 
what time of day it was, no matter what we tried, it didn't work. And what ended up happening was I just had terrible low blood sugars to the point where I would pass out. I would lose track of time. Um, I would be found laying on the ground. Uh, no one knew what was wrong with me and I wasn't catching on to it. It was just something that happened. How long was this going on? So this was directly after the transplant in, in 2015. I mean, not the transplant, I'm sorry. The, uh, the kidney stone removal yeah. in 2015. And so um, I felt like crap that that takes all your energy away from you. So not only like was I in law school, I was dealing with that and I knew something else was not right. I was like, this something is just not right with me. So I kept going to the doctor. I would, um, about every week I was there, I was like, something is not right. And they're like, your blood work is right. Everything is right. Um, this is just your new way of life. What the and I was not okay with that. And that is kind of the first time I realized that I really had to stand up for myself because until then I was able to control my diabetes yeah. with insulin and, and food. I didn't need anything special. And so I finally just told the doctor, I go, look, I know something is wrong with me. Can you please order an x-ray, uh, uh, a CT scan, a ultrasound, you know, something of my organs because something is wrong and I just had this kidney issue. So as kind of like one of those things to prove me wrong, I was given an order for a ultrasound, yeah. which showed that my kidney was way larger than it was supposed to be. And it was blocked again and they could see the blockage. They didn't know what it was from. And uh, so I went back in for surgery and I woke up and they were like, it was unsuccessful. Something stuck in the bottom of your kidney. We can't break through it. We don't know what it is. And we need to put a nephrostomy tube, I believe it is called, um, in your back to drain your kidney so that you don't turn septic and die. Uh, So I got that put in and then it was a whole try to figure out what was wrong with my kidney oh, situation. Oh my God. Okay. Um, I think he pulled it up. So it's called a, yeah. Nephrostomy is nephrostomy. a, yeah. Is yeah. a, what does it say? Is a thin plastic tube catheter that is inserted through the skin on your back and uh, into your kidney. Some people may have a catheter into each kidney. The, what is that word? Nephrostomy drains urine from one or both kidneys into collecting bag outside your body. The bag has a tap so you can empty it. That's what you had to do. Yep. For how long? Uh, it was about two months. They wanted to keep it in me for two years. What um, the fuck? But I, again, I was in law school and I was like, this is ridiculous. So I had this bag sitting at, on the side of me that my urine was draining in, yeah. into from my kidney. Um, they didn't want to go back. They didn't want to put me back in surgery because they wanted to figure out what, what was wrong. And ultimately they, they said, this is just something we've never seen before. And we believe it's scar tissue. So we're going to keep going in and try to remove it. So I would go back in for surgery. Um, and they went in with a different type of laser. It didn't work. So then the next week I went in for another type of surgery. And this time they were going to go in with wires through the nephrostomy tube in my back through my kidney and the wires couldn't break through it. So then the next time they were going to do it through my back, through my kidney, through the nephrostomy tube. And it's a whole, it looks like PVC pipe coming out of your back. Um, you can just see it at all times. Yeah. yeah, It's crazy. So at first they put in a little one, um, and when they started needing to do surgeries on it, they put in a bigger one. And I, I literally had pipe 
coming out of my back and a hose that would go to the right side of my back and it would drain into the bag uh, for my urine. And, and I was supposed to keep that for two years. No, I was like, no, it's not okay. no. And so I couldn't sit regularly because I had that sitting out of my back. And, and so anyways, I was like, this has to be fixed. How would you sleep? Yeah, that's a good question. I had to sleep on my uh, stomach or my side. I had to put pillows so I wouldn't roll on it. Um, it w- yeah, And I had to flush it every day with saline solution. And I was like, I can't do all like... Th- this yeah. is just too much. And I like I wasn't told like the information of the importance of it. And it was just one of those things where I was like, I'm not okay with this. We have got to get this solved yes. situation. Yeah. So they kept going in. So they went in from my uh kidney, the nephrostomy hole, um, and they went up through me, um uh through my ureter and everything again. So they came in from both sides trying to break this the uh, scar tissue up that didn't work. And so eventually they were just like, well, we're just going to have to go in and cut out the scarred part completely and reattach everything. And I was like, okay, when can we do it? (laughs) And, and they said, we, we can do it probably in, uh, three to five months and let your kidney heal and come back down. And we got to figure out what's going on with it. Meanwhile, I'm in law school. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I just got an internship in Washington, D.C., and I'm taking classes there. And this is happening in December, and I have to leave January 7th. No. And so I was like, I'm leaving January 7th, and I'm leaving without this in my back. And they were like, well, I don't think that's, it's possible. Um, and they said, well, around Christmas time, the machine that we need to use, is it's it's called like the Da Vin- the Da Vinci something. Yeah, 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 system. yeah, yeah. The Da Vinci. Um, we pull a picture of that. Uh, it's this um, thing that they're able to work. And I was like, okay, great. So, what hospital do I have to go to to make this happen? They're like, well, it will never happen. It's booked. And and so every day I called, and I finally got scheduled for surgery, December twenty seventh. Um, oh my god! And the surgeon worked really well with me. That's yeah, it. That's, that's it. So the doctor sits behind behind it, and it. Um, they make five holes in you and they work with the holes and, and the, the machine. Yeah. It's uh it's uh sorry to cut you off. The FDA recently granted 500 whatever clearance to the intuitive surgery, surgical Da Vinci SP surgical system. The approval is specific, whatever. Um, can you scroll up real quick so I can read it? So pretty much it is uh, like an autonomous, uh, well, not autonomous. It's like a robot that can precisely do different types of surgeries on like a microscopic level, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And so they needed to rent that or have that machine available for me. And that's the thing. It was booked all the way until that three to five months. And I was just like, no, because I'm leaving the seventh. And they said, well, you can leave with the tube. And I was like, no, no, I need to go to, I need to go, you know, and get my experience. And and they suggested that I just take off a school. And I was like, no, I'm not doing that. And so, um, let me kind of put that into perspective. It wasn't like all of a sudden I was in law school. I, after we sold the farm, I went to Bible college. Um, I didn't really know what to do with that. So then I went and I became a high school social studies teacher. After a few years of that, I was like, I got to find something else to do because this is just, it wasn't working for me. Um, I loved investing in, in students life and I liked the job, but dealing with administration is just really difficult and all that kind of stuff. So I was like, what else can I do? And I applied for grad schools. I applied for law schools and I got in and I was like, how old were you? Um, 
my late twenties. Okay. Yeah. In my late twenties. Nice. And so I deferred it a couple of years before yeah. just deciding to go. I was like, you know what? Just do it, do it, just do it. And so I finally went and I, I didn't know what I was getting myself into, but I got this great internship that everyone wants, you know, everyone's <laughs> applying for and I got it. And I'm like, I'm not giving this up. No. Like, heck no. So, um, six surgeries later, they removed the bottom part of my kidney and part of my ureter and reattached everything. And, um, I was in the hospital uh, over new years and then I got out. And then the next day was my flight to Washington DC. And so I got on a plane and I was like, Holy heck. Oh, yeah. And so the doctor worked really well with me and he said, and he put in dissolvable stitches and glue instead of staples. And internally he like double stitched everything so that nothing would break. And like, I had to hire somebody when I got there to like handle my luggage and stuff like that. It was like this huge journey, but I was determined to do that. And somehow in some way we got there, I was told that it was impossible and we made it happen. You fucking made it happen. What is that, man? Like seriously, like everything that you were just faced with, right? <laughs> To, to then hear that you just, you're, you didn't take no for an answer. You did not take no for an answer because you had this goal and you just, you saw it. Remember before the podcast, we were talking about like, you know, when people get laser focused on shit, yeah. right? And, and for you, it was taking care of the situation and then getting to DC. What, 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 what was that? How was it even possible I mean, because they told you no so many times. Yeah. Um, I think at that point I was just, I, I was so focused on this goal of something that I knew that it was a once in a lifetime opportunity. Yeah. And what was happening to me, I was like, ah, eh, it's just like, get it over with. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I don't mean I, I don't, to laugh. I, yeah, no, but really I, it's like, I, I didn't have time to deal with the health issue because I, I needed to get that experience and I wanted it. I wanted to be involved in making laws. I wanted to go and do that so bad that it was worth it for me to push. And it wasn't like I'm this big asshole saying, oh no, this has to get done. It's only going to get done. Yeah. It was no, I called every day. I did, I did, I did all the groundwork. I made sure everything happened. And lo and behold, it, it, it happened. I, I mean, it, it, I got lucky with that. Um, and so I was in Washington DC and all the low blood sugar stuff kept happening. I, um, would pass out at work. One of the worst experiences that I had was I went on a cruise and I went to get a massage because you can leave out of Baltimore and they're super inexpensive. So you can take a cruise out of Baltimore oh, shit. and um, it goes to the Caribbean and it was a lot of fun. Never had been, went with friends and stuff like that. And on the last day heading back, they had deals on massages and I was like, well, why the heck not? Yeah. And anyways, um, I died. Um, I was, I never woke up from the massage and I woke up to the medical team trying to resuscitate me. Shut um, the fuck up. I had been shocked twice with the defibrillator. Yeah. Um, they had IVs in me and they were putting uh, glucagon, which is for low blood sugars um, because I had no heartbeat and no breath. And so the doctor laughed um, after I had recovered and he just laughed and he said, you're supposed to be dead. I was going to call it. And he <sighs> said, if it wasn't for your friend that was saying you were a diabetic with low blood sugars, I would have just called it. So that oh was, that was kind of like the big wake up call as, okay, something is really wrong because I had never been in a situation that bad yeah. before. 
Oh my gosh. Yeah. So where were you? Um, cause you had went on the Caribbean. You went, were you on the ship? Or, yep. Or? I was on the ship and we were on the, I was on the last day heading back to port in Baltimore. So, so you woke up in Baltimore. I woke up in the ocean. Oh, um, on the ocean. Yeah, 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 yeah. On the boat in the massage room, uh, to the emergency personnel all over me and, and stuff <sighs> like that. Yeah. That was like, it was shocking to me. Um, never been in that situation before. Yeah. And so, <laughs> sorry. Uh, no, but it's true. It, it's like, I, I, you know, I'm this, I'm this idiot figuring things out as I'm going. You're not, and you're it's not like, Hey, um, it is a really serious thing, um, yeah. that happened. And, and it's like, what am I going to do with that situation? And so I called my doctors and they're like, well, you know, you just need to eat more, try eating graham crackers before bed, try eating peanut butter. I was just like, okay. Like at the time I was, I didn't really know what was going on. Yeah. And so then I started um, my job because for this semester, the semester ended, um, I had the low blood sugars, but I was able to, I was able to push through it. I had them. It was difficult, but I was able to get my work done. I had an awesome time, made good friends. Yeah. Then I got into the state department for an internship. Holy and shit. And so I was like, okay, I'm staying here. I'm not going back. And uh, so I did that for the summer and I worked with some amazing people because I was given a presentation and while I was giving it, I went out of it. I had a low blood sugar and I was oh, no. mumbling and not making sense. And I told them that, you know, I've been having struggles controlling my uh, diabetes and I have a low blood sugar. So if I'm ever out of it, um, this is where my stuff is. And one of them ran and got my juice and, and came back and I drank it. And then um, we kind of talked about it and I was like, this is the situation that I'm in. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And so we had a conversation um, kind of about what that looks like. And um, in terms of the future. Yeah. And I was asked like, well, what, what do you know that can happen for you, um, to help you right now? And I was like, the only thing that can happen that can help me right now is a diabetic alert dog that would let me know about these, um, low blood sugars before my meters and monitors could alert me. Wait, what? Yeah. What's a diabetic a, a, alert? A diabetic I've heard of them, but I don't know what I, I, I uh, yeah. what is that? So it's a trained service animal that can sense when your body chemistry changes and your blood sugar sub starts dropping. How? It's done through scent. Um, wow. And they believe that they, um, so they're trained on a cotton ball. Okay. So if you have a low blood sugar, you can suck on a cotton ball with your saliva, put it in a glass jar and send it in and the dog will be trained on that scent to know that when it smells that, it needs to come and alert you. I see, I see exactly what that that's pulled up. It's right, right here. Our, our, oh, wow. This is a company, I guess, Diabetic uh, Alert Dogs of America. It says our diabetic alert dogs are trained to alert diabetic handlers to advance of low hyperglycemic or high hyperglycemic blood sugar events uh, because they become dangerous. A diabetic alert dog's early detection allows the handler to take the proper steps to return their blood sugar to normal healthy range. Diabetic Alert Dog of America services individuals of all ages and families affected uh, by diabetes throughout the entire United States. Wow. And just to share a, a quick story, yeah. uh, before the birth of my son, uh, our dog who is not trained uh, in anything, he's just a dog who understands his owner, uh, was taking special care of my wife before, uh, before she got into labor about two hours beforehand because he realizes signs of something that's not going as normal. Yeah. Wow. 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 And so when you told them that, what happened? What was next? Well, 
it was, I needed a diabetic alert dog or a transplant. And it was like a transplant, you, you know, you, you don't get one. And so the option was diabetic alert dog. And they said, well, we'll make it happen. And Wait, I was like, what the do you state mean? department said that. Yeah. They said, we'll make it happen. I said, well, what does that mean? And they just said, we're, we'll help call. We'll help you call. And, um, allow you time every day to call places and um, to find one. And so every day for about an hour, um, usually during lunch, I would call and email and all kinds of trainers that, that train these service dogs. Yeah. It's a very specialized thing. And what I found out was that they're very expensive um, and there's a very long wait list. And most of the places want $5,000 up front for a down payment and it will cost between Ten to fifty thousand dollars, depending on the dog and the company, and you'll get your dog in three to five years. That's, Wait, what? That's how long it is to have a trained diabetic alert dog. And this is like a proven system that it works for people. Yes. Well, it just doesn't even make sense to me. If it's proven, why isn't this like? Ah, continue your story. Yeah, Sorry, right? this is okay. fucked up. Yeah. Man. So I'm learning all about this as I'm going, and yeah. I'm just like, okay. So I'm. Um, the reason why I needed the diabetic alert dog was because I couldn't feel the low blood sugars coming on. Usually you get symptoms, you get a headache, you get confused, you get tingling in, yeah. in your fingertips and, and your um, lips. And I've always, I had that my entire life until my kidney situation. And so now I'm dealing with a whole new realm of symptoms and I need to learn how to control them. And there's this thing called a continuous glucose monitor that you can wear and it kind of alerts you to low or high blood sugars because it's reading your blood sugar every few seconds and lets you know what's going on. Those are great. For most people, they work awesome. However, when you have brittle diabetes, which is what I was eventually diagnosed with, which means you can't control your blood sugars no matter what you do, it means that you go from a completely normal blood sugar to a completely whacked out one where you're not in control of it within seconds. Um, and the issue is that the continuous glucose monitor systems are not within seconds. So by the time uh, they read the upper layer of your skin, it, it's called the subdermal something layer. They're not reading actual blood, yeah. but it's, it's a little bit later than live blood. And so what ends up happening is it kind of alerts you five to 10 minutes later than what your actual blood sugar is, where the dog would be actually immediately telling you, which is, that was the situation that I was in. It would happen so fast that the dog need, wouldn't need to tell me. Whoa. So I would be already passed out or out of it by the time the continuous glucose monitor yeah. would be alerting me that my blood sugar was dropping. So that's the situation that I was in. So I called and I called and I emailed and I emailed. And about a month later, I finally got a hold of somebody who was like, okay, here's the deal. I'm retiring. <laughs> I have two dogs left. I'm, I was going to save one. And it was going, um, I was going to save it for the adult program, meaning she was going to keep on training it so that it can call 911 and do a couple other things Wait, what? if you became completely unresponsive. I so the dogs can be trained more than just to alert you. They can be trained to provide other services. Like if, if after so much time you're, yeah. you don't respond to the dog, it would then go push buttons to call 911 or it would then learn how to do whatever it's supposed to do to save ah, your life. It's amazing. And so I was like, okay, like how much is it? She goes $10,000 and he's yours. And I was like, well, why are you getting rid of him? And, and she was like, you need him more than anyone else I've ever seen him. And I was like, okay. 
but where am I going to get $10,000 from? And this dog is in Northern California and I'm in Washington, DC and all this stuff is happening. And so, um, had to figure out what to do with that. And that was the first time I ever understood the idea that I had to ask somebody to help me. Um, I didn't have $10,000. I, was just a teacher and now I'm a student again. Yeah. I don't, you know, I don't have this big income and can work at a hotel part-time. And <laughs> so, um, my grandma, uh, gave me the money and then I was able to, um, fundraise that. No, actually, I'm sorry. <laughs> Let me rephrase that. It's all good. My grandma gave me the money. My dog later needed a surgery that I had. Your to dog needed a surgery. Yeah. And, um, uh, I had to fundraise money for that because it, I needed $5,000 up front. And I, again, I was like, what the heck? Where do you get money? Like, you know what I mean? It's just, it's I get like that. I all, get that. Everything is just so expensive in life. And so, um, especially in the States. So wait, you, you, but first off you, you were, your grandma helped out and you got the dog. What was it like when you got the dog? What kind of dog is the where I, yeah. So happened? they train all different types of dogs. This, this trainer specifically likes golden doodles. Okay. Um, cause, uh, she just said they have strong bones they're perfect dogs and th- th- uh, they train really easily and they're really loving and all that kind of stuff so I have a golden doodle he's the hypoallergenic type um, he's the color of a golden retriever and looks like a poodle you still have him I, yep oh I you should have brought him, him. oh I, what's his name his name is Boone like Boone like Daniel Boone yeah. I love that I love that how old is he he's five ah that's so cool so okay you eventually get the you get you get Boone, right? Yep. What what was it like? I get, mean, I get Boone. So we go. Um, it takes two days for the trainer to kind of like tell you what's going on, and I'm thinking, what am I like? I need this dog to live, right? Like, yeah. I, like like legitimately need him to live. But what's life going to look like with this dog next to me? Yeah. I'm like, how do you go from just living a life to now living a life with a dog next to you at all Always. times and, and taking him with you? And I'm and I'm so after the internship. I went back to Phoenix, which is where I was in law school and it's hotter than Hades there. And <laughs> so I have to get shoes for the dog. It's it, to me, it's like taking care of a toddler. You got to yeah. think of it. Like, what do I have to bring with you um, for every day? It's too hot for you to walk. We have to bring your shoes and then you have yeah. to, you have to deal with everything and, and the discrimination from businesses and all that kind of stuff. However, yes. the first uh, few hours that he was with us, he came up and alerted me. My blood sugar was dropping and he alerted me right then and there. Shut the fuck up. Yeah. What does he do? So you you can watch him. He'll if if he's laying down or if he's walking, he starts smelling the air. He can smell it. And he kind of walks closer to you and he starts smelling you. And then he'll like get real close and he'll smell like your leg or your hand. And then he'll start pawing at you. At no. your leg. And so that's the Yep, and scratching you. And so when he does that, that's how you know that your blood sugar is dropping. And so I always had juice on me. And so I would drink my juice. And then the way the dog knows, um, or the way that Boone knew that I caught on and that everything was okay was that you give him a treat and that's like, and that stops. I get, and then he knows. Yeah. And so it immediately that first day I was like, Holy heck that this is crazy. Dude, and so do you test it to make sure, like, like, yeah, and so because of the continuous glucose yeah. monitor, it would show up. Oh yeah, later. five ten minutes later. Yeah, yeah, and then you would see that drop, and it's like, okay, right, well, I already took care of it. You oh know? my and, gosh! And so, um, he definitely 
played a big role in me surviving for as long as I did because at night he would wake me up. Um, and uh, in, in um, I would finish my last semester in law school and I had him there with me and, you know, everyone loves him because he's this cute dog yeah. and all that kind of stuff, which is great. And I don't necessarily enjoy the intention, but he was a lifesaver. Yeah. And so then, um, but I'm still having the low blood sugars. And just because I had them didn't mean that they were getting any better. Yes. But I was catching up. I wasn't passing out nearly you as much. You were, I, you were alive. I was alive. And if I didn't have that opportunity from that internship to like f for that confidence to say, you're going to get one um, uh, and we're going to make it happen. Like if I didn't have that confidence that it was going to happen, I doubt I would have pushed as hard for them because in my mind I was like, ah, this is just going to figure itself out. Cause the doctors were telling me that like the kidney doctor was like, your kidney just needs to get used to it. Your body just needs to get used to it. And so that's just, that's just kind of where we were at with that. But once I got Boone and noticed how much he was alerting me, it was to a point where I, again, was, came to that realization of, Hey, this is just happening way too much. And this is a problem. And yeah. so I needed to figure out what, what, what was the solution to this issue that I was going with? And so that's kind of where I was at with that. So when you, uh, first off, to kind of dial it back and then we'll get back to like what happened next. So, so when you, when you get Boone, right. And you have to bring him everywhere, what did that look like? I mean, I heard you talking about like, you know, sometimes maybe not to you and I, I don't know. And we'll get to that. It's like, how do businesses react? Do you go get a job or another internship or you're going to school or people, I mean, I'm sure like people think, oh, he's cute and he's amazing, right? But then there are also people like, why the fuck you got this dog in here? Yep. What was that like? So it's a, um, it was a big realization because you see people with service dogs and you just immediately you, you have a prejudgment about it. Yes. You, you either, you either are like, oh, that's total bullshit. Or you're like, wow, like good for them. Like yeah. there's an opinion about of it. Of course. And people abuse it. They, all the time. They claim, you know, their animal is a service dog it's and all that kind fucking of stuff. bullshit. And no there's someone. a huge difference between a therapeutic animal and a service animal. And a service animal is covered under, um, the American with disabilities act. Yep. So it's covered by ADA, law. right? Yep. The ADA. And so businesses can't discriminate you because of them. But they don't understand the law very well. And so when I would walk, it's mostly in restaurants, it happened in a bowling alley, happened in the airport. Um, immediately people come up to you and say, what is a dog? Like, what, why do you have this dog? And you, <sighs> you have to answer. Yeah. But because of the complexity of situations, I, I, play it, I play it by the law. And there are two questions that can be asked. What does the animal do? And why do you have the animal? So I would say it's a diabetic alert dog and it alerts me to low blood sugars. Well, then they want to see proof. And it's like, no, you can't because it's covered under the law. Yeah, of course. You can only ask two questions and I've answered them. And you can, you can even be more general than that. You can just say it's a service dog and it provides me service. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, like there are rules like the dog has to be leashed. It can't be going to the bathroom um, indoors. And if it does, you have to clean it up. Like there are yeah. rules, but outside of that businesses can't do anything, but they do. And so I kind of took it on as like a role of, I was going to educate people Fuck on, yes. on the law. And it always turned out to be a bad thing because the businesses want to fight you and they're afraid at the moment you say, well, um, 
uh, you are already breaking the law by asking me, like, what disease do I have? Why do I need the dog? You can't ask that, period. Um, that's protected under HIPAA. And um, according to the American Disabilities Act, you can only ask these two questions. Actually, here, let me show you. Yeah, this, yeah, pull I, it up. I, would, I would present this, and this, this always Let's made me laugh. This sometimes would shut people up. So this is so. so I, oh shit! I'll, I'll show it to you. Yeah, Boone yeah. is so fucking cute. Such a cool dog. Yeah, he's an awesome. Yeah, this is a dog I've seen on Instagram. Yeah, read the backside of it. Okay, though. hold on, hold on. Let's see. It says U.S. Federal Service Dog Law. Uh, this service dog and their access to all public. Oh uh, yeah. So and their access to all public places and commercial carriers is protected under federal law. The owner of this service dog is. Pre- the owner of this service dog is presenting this card voluntarily and is not required by federal law uh, to do so under the federal ADA Act of U.S. FAA and DOT. For questions regarding the ADA, contact the United States Department of Justice. Holy shit! At 800-514-0301, U.S. Department of Justice, ADA.gov. Check this out. Fucking Boone, man. He's Boone's awesome. such a cool dog. He's a great dog. So what would happen is. I would go into a restaurant and immediately I'd say, oh, I, I, and this is, I'm in, I mean, he traveled, we went everywhere, you know, together. Yeah. I mean, everywhere I went, he went, but I would like for just for an example, it'd be middle of summer in Phoenix. Um, it's 122 degrees outside. And I walk into a restaurant and they immediately come and sit me on the patio outside. And I would say, no, I would like to sit inside. They're like, well, you have a dog. And so then I have to explain to them the law. And then they would say, well, it's not a service dog. And because he looks, he looks like, um, a pet, not a service yeah. dog. You know, because it's supposed like, to look like a fucking golden retriever or something. Like, I, I guess he's too fluffy and he looks like a stuffed. I don't know. <laughs> so like, there's all these things. So stupid. Um, and so like that would happen. I walked into an airport and because I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell them that I was a uh, type one diabetic with hypoglycemia unawareness. They almost had me arrested. I had police holding my arms and taking my luggage away from me because I was a danger because I wouldn't inform them of that. Are you fucking kidding me? No, this is a huge, like this is a, this is a major problem. So to me, I'm thinking, well, what if this was me when I was a kid and I was dealing with this crap? That's not fair. So then I, you know, I try, I file every paper that I can with good with everything. And I, and I try to inform people the best I can. Um, so when I say like discrimination, it's a real thing. And I feel bad for people that need these animals, um, to provide a life-saving service for yeah. them. And then they're not welcome to where they go. And it really is unfortunate because it's, it's not a good feeling when you don't feel welcomed when you go grocery shopping or if you're going to enjoy a night bowling and they kick you out because you have a dog and you know like is it worth the fight or like you 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 try to figure out what is worth your time and effort and energy when you when you hit those moments but i like to think that i at least have informed enough people about um boone and i'm lucky to tell people about service animals now yeah. so that people can become more aware of what they're, what they do and the, the purpose they're there, you know, they're not just to make you feel comfortable there. A service animal is there only to save your life because you can't do it on your own. Fuck. So that's what they're there for. Dude. I, 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 first off, I don't even know what to say. Boone, Boone is amazing. Yeah. I mean, it really, he, he truly, truly is amazing. Um, do you think, what part of, you know, the discrimination that you have personally faced because of having a service dog is correlated to all the people that are getting the therapeutic dogs that obviously don't need it. Um, and I'm not saying there aren't people out there that don't need it, but I do know a couple people in my own life that 
have a license or have, I don't know what they exactly get, but the ability to take their dog anywhere. And it's just fucking bullshit. Um, what type of role does that play on individuals like yourself that actually really need these service dogs to save your life? Yeah. So I understand the therapeutic dog aspect of it. I understand they provide a therapy, but the difference between a therapeutic dog and a service dog, and the reason why service dogs are covered under the Americans with Disabilities Act is because without the dog, you will die. Without the dog, you cannot function as a person. And so the dog is providing you with a life-saving service. Whereas a therapeutic dog, there are... Um, other means um, to, to handle situations um, and stuff like that. And uh, it, it's currently not covered under federal law. Under some state laws, they are uh, therapeutic dogs. But the people abusing um, the the thing with just saying, oh, it's a service dog. Like, yep. You know, I, um, I was just at the beach and people had their pit bulls on the beach and yeah. the lifeguards come up and they're like, you, you know, this is not the dog beach. And people are like, it's a service dog. You have to make the decision as a law enforcement person at that moment, like, do you want to pick that fight or do you let it go? And if they let it go, then it ruins it for everyone else that actually needs their uh, animal with them. Because the two animals that are covered are miniature horses and dogs. So like a bird, a cat, a snake, you know, those aren't service animals. Um, The miniature horses are for people who lose their balance, um, who have uh, muscular dystrophy and and stuff like that. So they can hold, hold onto them. They don't fall over. And that's what the larger dogs are for. And Ah. so um, it really does. um, The therapeutic dogs offer a great service for people who need them, but in terms of taking them on flights and taking them into restaurants and stuff like that, it really, ruins things um for people who legitimately need it makes it way more difficult like a couple years ago i don't know if you saw in the news um maybe this was yeah a few years ago um a girl had her peacock flying around the airport yes as a therapeutic animal and that's when airlines got really strict about um animals coming on airplane because they were just like we've had enough of this and so they they even fight against people who have the service dogs now and then they want to charge you more money to take on um to take the dog on and stuff like that so it 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 is a matter of discrimination towards someone with a disability all based on the animal and so if i don't mind fighting for myself but i feel bad for people who can't so i kind of like i i took that as like a responsibility of me to help inform um all about that kind of stuff and and i commend you for doing that because there is a staunch difference there's a strong difference uh between the two one is life-saving the other one is i mean if you have panic attacks and all that like i feel bad for people that do and i feel bad for the people that do have therapeutic dogs that really do help them but i do know the the amount of people that take advantage of the situation and for you to have to walk into a store, a restaurant, an airport, wherever the fuck it is to get any type of, you know, look or questioning. I mean, I mean, questions are fine, right? You answer it. It is what it is. Um, but the, the magnitude of things that you have faced just because of, of, of your dog, that's literally a, a life or death situation. It's a, terrible thing and i hope that you know through you educating people and more and more people educating people um it can change the tide but it does worry me because the amount of people that do have therapeutic dogs that are cheating the system and then it's like how does the individual that owns the store or is a you know someone that works at the airport or the the restaurant or wherever it is 
know the difference. Um, so I, there, there needs to be, I don't know if there is clear cut laws, but there definitely needs to be more clear cut laws. Yeah. Um, it's hard to make it it, like the ADA law is very clear cut as to what a service animal is, but how do you prove that training? How do you prove that it provides you those things? Unless you haven't like, again, like the low blood sugars, you wouldn't know that I no. had it. Like you wouldn't looking at me, you wouldn't know something no. was wrong with me. So um, it's one of those uh, hard situations. And the reason why you have a service animal is not because your life is easy. It's because <laughs> you have something wrong. Yeah. And when you're constantly faced with this battle with people, you don't even want to go out in public anymore. It's, it's kind of like you digress back into just staying at home because it's too hard on your mind and body to deal with. And, plus the disease. Yes. And so it, it takes a huge toll. And I don't think um, people realize that enough. Ah, man, that's, that's a shame for, for you. Has it, um, because of everything you've gone through, did, were there periods where you're like, I just rather not go out or you were like, I'm going to fucking just do this and educate people and continue. I had a pretty spitfire attitude about it. <laughs> um, cause you know, I had just finished law school and stuff, so I didn't mind sitting there and educating. I knew what my rights were. Call the police. I don't care. Yeah. Um, that was kind of my attitude. Um, but towards the end, when I got so sick and I couldn't get out of bed and it was nothing but problems, I didn't go anywhere. Um, and that, that was because I didn't have the energy to go and, and fight for that and, and do that it. kind of stuff. But yeah, I, I didn't, I think over time, it probably, if, if it kept going on for like eight, 10 plus years, I probably would have started giving up on that hope of everywhere you go, putting up that fight. Yeah, I can. So then you probably find just regular spots that accept it and that's just where you go. Fuck man. Cause I'm sure there are plenty of people out there that are, that are facing the same exact thing. It's just like, why even bother go out if I'm going to fucking deal with this every single time? Yeah. And it's just a real shame. Fucking people taking, trying to take advantage of the system system. Um, Okay. Yes, sir. And so times that you don't bring Boone with you, mm-hmm. um, do you rely on your monitor? So when I had Boone with me, he was with me at all times. And I had the monitor with me because the uh, I would need to know if my blood sugar was going up too high and kind of like what was going on with it. But every day was different. So I would still wear the continuous glucose monitor uh, on me. And I still would test my blood when I would do finger sticks. Um, and that would tell me what was going on with my blood sugars. And I had to confirm if my blood sugar was going low, if Boone was alerting me because he might be trying to trick me because he wanted to treat. Oh shit. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's, there's a lot of factors that go into that. And so, yes, I was still doing everything that is needed to take care of, um, the diabetes and the low blood sugar situation. Um, I didn't just rely on him. And I think that that is a good point because a lot of people, rely especially with with diabetic alert dogs just kind of rely on them as oh they're just going to let me know if my blood sugar is low and we'll just we'll, we'll leave it at that and you can't you have to keep track of everything he's a backup um boone is a boone was a backup to what i was going through i couldn't rely solely on him and i couldn't rely solely on uh, the machines that i that i used and so it was kind of i needed both of them wow wow okay um, kind of to pivot from what you said, what was it, uh, that got to the point where, cause obviously you don't have Boone today and then I know things got worse. What, what happened? Okay. So, um, six months after I got Boone, um, 
that my kidney, my nephrologist, my kidney doctor called me and says, you need to come in. And I was like, what, like what, yeah. what is going on? And he just said, you are in kidney failure. Um, and he said, I don't know if it's worth going back in with the urologist to have more surgery done. He just says, I think your kidney has had it. It's no longer functioning. Your other kidney is making up for it. And you're probably having all the low blood sugars because your kidney isn't processing anything correctly. It's just collecting stuff. It's not yeah. draining. And that's when he kind of like informed me that insulin that you take is processed through your kidneys. And if you have one kidney that's totally fucked and is not working and not doing what it's supposed to, it might be holding on to insulin and and all that kind of stuff. So, that, so like it was kind of like a light at the end of the tunnel. I was like, okay, so what can we do to solve yeah. this? And so he was like, we need to remove your kidney. And I was like, well, can I, like, what does that look like? And and he says, well, if you keep it in, what you're going through is probably going to happen. It's going to get worse. It's going to turn septic again and, and all that kind of stuff. But if we remove it, it will most likely solve the low blood sugar problems and it won't cause any more damage to your remaining kidney. And so I was like, okay, let's get rid let's of it. it yeah. And so again, that was the following year over Christmas time again, that's when I had my kidney removed. Jesus, man. Yeah. And then, so you you go through that process, right? You get the kidney removed. Now, had you been done with law school at this point? Yeah, so I had just finished law school <sighs> and in that December, and um, I was supposed to graduate and everything like that. I didn't, didn't do any of that because I was dealing with all this yeah. health stuff. And I was taking the bar in February, and so trying to get prepared for that. And then I had the the kidney removed and um, they tried to go in again with the Da Vinci machine, okay, yeah. but I had too much scar tissue from our former kidneys. So then they cut me completely open and took out the kidney. And that was my longest recovery in the hospital. I don't know if it was because of the scar tissue or what, but it was, it was pretty bad. How long were you in? Uh, I think six days. Yeah. Um, I just, it was just, it was it was just such really bad pain. Yeah. I don't know if that's from removing an organ or what that was from. Um, uh, a lot of it had to do. I had just terrible back and neck pain. I was like, "What the heck?" Yeah. And that's because they fill. They said we fill your body with gas, so like you're you're stretched way out. Okay. Um, so when they're doing the surgery, they have easier access to your organ. Jesus, like, man. Okay. That's fucking weird. So, yeah. So, like, like the weirdest, the strangest <laughs> things hurt. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm like, do you think the scar should hurt? Yes. Yeah. But cut? it's like your fucking back, your neck. Yeah. All of these things. Yeah. yeah. That, that's crazy even to think they're like, whoever thought, like, let's fill you up with this to do this, right? Yeah. It's just, uh, it's it's really, really strange. But so you you go through that process, man. You, you, you recover. Like when did the transplant come in? How the fuck did that? Okay. So <sighs> removing the kidney was supposed to solve my low blood sugar issues. Yeah. My, my, all that kind of stuff. It didn't, um, it kept getting worse. And so, Fucking hell, man. And, and so I got a job at a law firm. Um, I'm waiting for the you, bar results. Okay. You're waiting for the bar results. I'm waiting yeah. for the bar results. Got a job at a law firm and I'm working and I'm passing on at work. Um, by the, even boot with Boone alerting me, I am still passing out. Um, it, I think it was just too much stress on my body, on my mind, the low blood sugar. Everything was happening all at the same time. It was too much for me to handle. And 
I refused to accept that. And I just kept pushing forward, kept going. And so I got to a point where I couldn't wake up and go to work anymore. Um, I would wake up with a low blood sugar and it's like, well, I got to wait. I have to wait for this to recover before I can even drive. And by that time it's like noon and my blood sugar is finally okay. And then I go into work and it, it wasn't working. And so uh, what I ended up having to do is I just stopped working and I made a doctor's appointment with every single doctor that I could possibly find to figure out what was going on with me because I was reaching a point where I was losing track of time. I didn't know what days it were. Um, I would like send emails that I forgot that I did and would redo it a lot. I was going through a lot of things and I knew that something needed to be solved because I went through the issue on the cruise. I had to get Boone, the diabetic alert doc. I had the kidney removed and nothing was solved. Nothing really improved. And so I was at a point where I needed to figure out what was going on. So I went to doctor after doctor after doctor and everyone was just like, you know, and we can't, there's nothing else we can do. Why don't we try keeping your blood sugars high for a long period of time by taking less insulin? So we tried that. It didn't work. So then it was like, well, why don't we try this different diet system where you eat every 10 minutes? And we really, yeah, we tried everything and nothing worked. And kind of what um, it was brought down to was that my body, because of what it was going through, wasn't digesting food correctly and allowing it to be broken down enough for the insulin to attach itself. And through my remaining kidney, the insulin wasn't processing correctly because it didn't have anything to attach to. So when the food gets broken down, uh, it gets delivered through insulin for energy to heal your body and all that kind of stuff. And because that wasn't going down, my body was breaking down internally, mentally in every aspect. I don't doubt that. Um, and so I finally had an appointment with a doctor. It was a new one. Um, I always brought all my records with me and did all that kind of stuff. And she walked in, sat down, And she just said, you need a pancreas only transplant. It's the only thing that's going to save your life. If you don't get one, you will die within less than two years. Your next low blood sugar could be the last one that you have. And you need to beg, borrow, and steal to have it done because it's not covered by insurance. Shut the... First off, um, who is this doctor? It's a diabetic doctor called an endocrinologist. Endocrinologist. How old was she? In her mid-40s. Okay, so young. Um, she walks in, never seen you before, Correct. just saw your stuff. Yep. And what, what, what did she see differently than every other fucking doctor? I think that she's had experience with this. Um, and she's, and she saw, has seen him through. So like, um, she says, I, I've dealt with patients like you. I've seen them, um, from, uh, where she did her medical school and all that kind of stuff. I think it was a very transplant oriented one. And so because of that background and history, she had a a broader view of what I was going through and she knew exactly what I needed and came in and sat down and legitimately said that kind of stuff. And it was like a jolt of fresh air into my world because I finally had an answer it wasn't like grasping at straws to see what w- would work. It was like, okay, this is what needs to be done in order for you to live. Cause if you don't do it, you don't have a life. Yeah. Do you, um, if you don't have to, but, uh, do you want to share her name? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> respect, respect, respect. Absolutely. No, no, no. I, t- I totally get it. Um, so then what happened? So you, you get the news, she shares it with you. Uh, what happened next? Okay. So the way it works for 
if you, if you need a transplant is you have to be referred by a doctor to a transplant hospital. So she referred me and in Arizona, there was only two transplant hospitals. And so she referred me to one of them. And so I submitted all my information. I did an on the phone interview and wow. I got a letter in the mail that said I couldn't qualify for a transplant um, for two reasons. One, I only had one kidney. And so that would just automatically disqualify me from any transplant unless it was for a kidney. And two, um, I didn't have the funds to pay for the surgery upfront because it's not covered by insurance. Are you fucking kidding me? Nope. This is one of the biggest issues we have in America. It's like people, so many people in your situation that, that the insurance doesn't cover this, the insurance doesn't cover that. But if it did, right? If it did, the, these individuals would be alive. And I just know from my own personal case, I spent $650 a month on health insurance just for myself, yep. right? Um, there are so many fucking people all across this nation that do not have that type of money. Um, and even in the same situation, if you had the best insurance, it's still not going to cover you. What the hell did you have to do? Cause this is like, this is a life or death situation for you and you're young. Yeah. And so what I said, like my response was like, well, if I paid cash, like, how does that work? Fucking hell, and, man. And yeah. so their response is like, you're not going to be able to do it. So we're not taking you on as a patient. So I was like, okay, I need to get, I need to get into another hospital, you know? Yeah. Like, Cause like right now I, I'm, I am on a race against time yeah. and I'm having low blood sugars and I only have so much energy to fight at this point. And I, and I want to live. I, I didn't feel like I just got done with law school. I had just had these awesome experiences in Washington, DC. <laughs> I needed to apply for jobs out there. And, and like, I had this full life to live yes. still. And, and I wanted to get back to that. And so it was worth it for me to keep fighting for it. And so I asked, um, my kidney doctor, my nephrologist, who who's really upfront and honest. He's awesome. His name's Dr. Swami Nathan in Phoenix, like awesome guy yeah. has helped me significantly. Um, he was like, hold on a minute. And right then and there in the room, he gets on the phone with a transplant surgeon at Mayo Clinic in Arizona, who's a friend of his and says, Hey, I have a patient here who needs a transplant. What do we need to do to get him in there? And the guy on the phone, I was on speakerphone, he answered and he was like, well, he needs to be referred and he has to go through all of the process and all that kind of stuff. And the first thing he asked after that was, does he have insurance? And, um, I, in my head, I was like, oh, that's going to be the battle, you know, like, what are we going to do? But at least I was able to get into another transplant hospital. Did you not have insurance at that point? I had insurance, but it's a matter of what type of insurance. Yep. So it's bullshit. Um, I was able to contact transplant places in other States. Um, and they were willing to see me, but insurance doesn't cross state lines. So stupid. Um, I got another letter from one when I inquired that I would not qualify for the same reasons. And so Mayo Clinic agreed to see me, but I had to pay for the appointment. It was, it was a couple hundred dollars. And that's, that's when um, they saw me and they said, well, um, we think you would qualify for the transplant. You're healthy enough. Your one kidney doesn't automatically disqualify you. The only issue is um, the insurance. And we only know of two insurance companies that cover pancreas only transplant. And that's because under the Affordable Care Act, that was passed. 
a pancreas only transplant is an optional coverage for insurances. Are you fucking kidding me? So no, and this is what it comes down to. So a, a pancreas only transplant. So it's like very specific is not covered because it's believed that it, uh, diabetes can be controlled in other ways by you know diet, exercise, eating. Or insulin. Because your situation is such a small part, small percentage of the population of people that are diabetic, it just doesn't even fucking matter to them. Right. It's just, it's a statistical thing. It, and the statistics are that most people who would need a pancreas only transplant are in kidney failure. Yeah. So if you needed a kidney, a pancreas is covered. If it's an add on or an after the fact, it's covered. But alone, it is not. So it's an optional coverage. And if you're an insurance company and you're in there to make profits, you're not covering anything that's optional. Man, I just don't understand how a pancreas is optional. So yeah, it, it, almost every other organ, lung, heart, well, liver is covered. You can, rem- can, can you remove the pancreas? Is, right? is there an addendum that you had a kidney transplant, right? Or no, just a kidney surgery where they removed. Correct. Yeah, but would there be an addendum if you had previously gotten a kidney? Yeah. Uh, so if I had a kidney, so the the like this was this was something that was discussed with Mayo Clinic. They were really good. That's the transplant hospital. They do a lot of different things there as well. But they said like, here's the thing: if you had a kidney, like if your current kidney failed, then you we could put you on the list for a kidney pancreas and it would be covered. The kidney would be covered. The pancreas would be covered, but not a pancreas only. Um, but because my kidney is good, why am I going to try to kill it to get it covered? And it would take too long. Um, I would die from low blood sugar before I could get on a kidney and the kidney transplant wait list is 10 years. So it's one of those things like, what, what do you do? Fuck man. So what happened? So I met with the financial coordinator and she was like straight to the point. She was like, you're in a really, really, really sucky situation. She was like, I don't, you couldn't be in a worse one financially because not whether you qualify for any type of insurance, Medicaid, Medicare, no matter what, you fall within the exception. And there's only two insurance companies that cover it. And next year, they're going to stop the coverage. So pancreas only is just simply not covered. So you have to come up with the cash. And we have a flat rate of $250,000 that has to be paid up front um, before we can list you. And so I said, how do I get that kind of money? And she said, uh, take out a loan, sell your house. Um, sell your kidney. Yeah, ask people. And so I left there with, in my head, I was like, okay, I need $250,000. Um, I should be living my life right now, having, yeah. having a career. And so what can I, what, what can I possibly do to get $250,000 um, for this life-saving thing? Meanwhile, I'm dealing with the low blood sugars. I'm dealing yeah. with passing out all the time. And... Uh, but you know, I, my life is spiraling out of control. Yeah. So I went from having like this awesome, like childhood, all the, and awesome life all the way up until the age of my late twenties in 2015. And then it just, it, it took a turn it, and it just, it, it went to shit. And so here I was with an answer with like a, a literally an literally. impossible, like literally an answer and literally an impossible task because I couldn't come up with 250 That's a lot of money, bro. That's a lot of money. Uh, $250,000 is a lot of money. And to be faced where it's just like, this is on my fucking fingertips. I can see it. I can fucking almost feel it. 
but if I don't come up with this money, I'm fucking screwed. And most nine out of 10 people, 9.9 out of 10 people would not have been able to figure it out. And I'm, I don't even know how you figured it out. And I know you're about to share how you figured it out. Uh, but it just, everything that you've shared up until this point, your story, I, my mouth has been on the floor this entire time. I've never met anyone in my life that has fought as much as you just to be alive, a fucking basic thing to be alive. We breathe air. We're alive, right? We, every single day we wake up, we're alive. You, but we, I can't even fathom what you have gone through. And it's given me so much perspective. You know how I shared in the beginning of the podcast, like I, sometimes on my worst days, I think, think about how lucky I am, how fortunate I am. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and I think about other places around the world. I promise you from this day forward, when on my shittiest day, I am going to have some real fucking perspective because of what you have gone through. So when I think of, ah, my God, this sucks. I'm in so much pain. This is fucking terrible. I'm going to think about Brandon's life and I'm not even bullshitting you, man. Like it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really an honor and so impressive that you're sitting here today. So as we kind of take it back to your story, what, what happened next? So I, I called my mom because I, so it was kind of like, I decided to stay in Arizona because that's where all my doctors had been. I had been in, I had been there for college, for undergrad, for graduate school. Um, and the, the, now I was attached to the Mayo Clinic, you know, like they have, yeah. they have nothing but great, um, great reviews and, and all that kind of stuff. And so and I was working with some really good people. And so the question was like, do I stay there? Do I move somewhere else? Do I try to get different insurance? Like I can't take out a loan. I have student loans. I haven't worked for a year. And you know, like this is one of the only times in my life where I felt completely hopeless and helpless because yeah. I didn't have anything. I was, I was able to live on $500 a month that was including rent, insurance, all my car stuff, Boone. And so I figured out a way to like live most minimalistically, wow. but I wasn't living, you know what I mean? I was surviving. And so it, it was kind of like, I had the conversation with my mom. I was just like, I don't know what, you know, what, I, what am I, what I'm supposed to do? Meanwhile, nobody knows I'm going through this kind of stuff. Um, so you're going through it alone. Um, yeah. Cause I'm, I, I, you know, like just how I didn't share my diabetic journey. If people asked about Boone, I would just say, Oh, you know, he's a, he's a service dog. Yeah. I wouldn't tell them like the whole backstory. And, um, a few of my friends knew what I was going through in terms of low blood sugars, but family really didn't know. And, and, um, close friends and relatives and all that kind of stuff really didn't know. And so, uh, the next day my mom called and she just said, look, I think what you need to do is tell people what you're going through and see if people are willing to, if, if, if everybody's willing to give a little bit of money, at least you can raise some. Yeah. And I was like, uh, uh, not doing that. Heck no. Because it, it was a pride thing. Yeah, I, I didn't want to admit weakness. I didn't want to show that it was vulnerable. Yes. Um, and I was like, it's not happening. Uh, uh-uh. uh. And so she called me again the next day and, and she just said, look, why don't you write a letter and send it to the close family members and just let them know what's going on and see if they have any ideas. Um, cause, uh, I, I have good family and, and, um, some of them have money and, and, and so I was like, no, <laughs> not doing that. I'm going to figure it out. You know yeah. what I mean? Cause up until that point I had always figured it out. But then I really got to thinking about it and I was like, what do I have to lose? Exactly. What do I have to lose by asking people 
to help me. Um, because not only will, if it works, I'll be able to pay them back. I'll be able to have my life back. And so what is it going to hurt? And that's, that's, it was kind of like in my head. So here I'm writing this legal letter <laughs> explaining everything that I have gone through, the reasons why I needed the transplant, the options. Like I looked into going to India because it would be about $20,000 oh my gosh, versus $250,000 here. And so like I presented all the options and all of that kind of stuff. And I sent the letters um, to eight family members and, um, I received one call and that was from my grandpa who told me to fuck off. And that was my expectation from people was to not give a shit. And why would they? Yeah. And, and so I was like, okay, well, I, we're going to have to think about it here. And so, um, my mom called again and she just said, have you heard anything? I was like, well, grandpa just told me to fuck off. And, and, um, then no one wants like no one wants to admit it, but he's a fucking asshole and Respect. has done nothing but has harmed our family. Yeah. Um, but uh, I get that uh, has has been in and out of our lives in different ways. Um, but so that's what I expected for family. Like well, you know, that's, yeah. that's why I didn't share stuff. It's, there's a reason why I'm not vulnerable. Okay? Of course. And two days after that, in the mail, a check showed up for twenty thousand dollars. <sighs> And I was like, what the hell? And um, well, it was a cashier's check, and it was an anonymous one. So I didn't know who it was from. And I was just like, what am I, what am I supposed to do with this? It's one of those things where it's like everything you've been waiting for and looking forward to, it like happens. Yeah. And so um, my friend, uh, who I was living with at the time, I was renting a room because I needed to live with somebody, not only with Boone, but to like yeah. check on me and make sure I was okay and all that kind of stuff. She was like, I'm going to start a GoFundMe page for you. And I was yep. like, oh gosh, please yeah. don't, don't do that. She said, nope, I'm doing it and I'm putting it on there. And so she did, um, she, I mean, she helped me. If it wasn't for her, it, a lot of this would not have been able to happen. And, and she helped me raise a lot of money by doing that. But that $20,000 from, from the anonymous person is really what got the ball rolling because um, I called Mayo Clinic and I said, I have a check for you for yes. $20,000. What do I do? And she said, well, can you cash it? And I said, yeah, it's a cashier's check. And she said, cash it and take it to me. So I went, I cashed it. I brought it to her, I set it on her desk and she says, okay, we're going to make the appointment for you to start the um, process to, to get you approved for surgery. And so within the next day, I got a call and I was scheduled to go in for um, scans and I had to have a heart test and I had to have all the doctor's appointments and all kinds of blood work and, and I started all of that. And um, that was kind of what started this whole new journey in my life was that was that check and by receiving that it kind of changed my perspective on humanity completely because yes. it was like it wasn't for five dollars it wasn't for like 20 it was for twenty thousand twenty thousand and that is that is pretty amazing and and significant and um it was like well what did i do to deserve this and it was you know you kind of process it through your mind and i came to the realization that i just i had to accept things yes um as they were and I had to just roll with it. And so that's, that's what I did. And that's kind of what started the process of me getting with this transplant and like through the GoFundMe, 
Um, once people started, like at first, nothing really happened. And then once uh, my friends started updating it, like, hey, we received a, a check for this much, yeah. and this is what Brandon is doing, and all that kind of stuff. Then people started, the strangers, um, people that I don't even know about w- would donate on there. People would contact me. Um, oh people gosh. that my mom went to school with whose kids um, needed um, transplants and knew what I was going through and offered support and, and just all kinds of stuff. And, and, and I was like, you know, why did I wait so long to let people know what was going on in my life? Because maybe along the way I could have had some help. When, yes. I, when here I am this entire time doing it alone, thinking nobody wants to help and, and why would anybody want to? But really there are the, there are people who don't give a crap and who really just, just want to see you fail. But there's also people out there who want to help you and yeah. support you. And it was, to me, it was a, one of the most amazing realizations that I've had in my life. It's a huge, uh, not only is it so you know gratifying and amazing to, you know, see all these people reach out, people that you don't even know, right? People that you do know. Um, but it's also a learning experience in your own story, right? Like you just said, it's like, why did I wait so long to reach out for help? And there are many people out there in your same situation and other situations that um, we, we put up these walls. We, we, we tend to. And sometimes if you have a friend or a family member that can help start chipping away at that wall and, and open open up. Um, you can see how amazing you know people are, right? We we tend to focus a lot on the darkness, but there are so many beautiful people out there like yourself. One man, you sitting right in front of me, man. Everything that you have gone through, um, and I can just feel your energy as you're freaking talking. I can feel it. And I'm gonna take a lot from this own from this experience from this podcast right now from hearing your own story, um, and and I commend you um, going through this, man. What was that next step? You started that journey. You they they you dropped off that twenty thousand uh, dollars. GoFundMe started coming in. Um, did you did you, you obviously reached your goal? So yes, we reached the goal. So. My grandpa that told me to fuck off. Yeah. Um, my grandma, his wife, uh, wired $100,000 to Mayo Clinic. Fuck yes. Um, after that. And that was like the biggest shock of my life. I was like, are you kidding me? Like, I don't even know like what to say or what to do. Again, I had to just accept it and roll with yeah. it. So that was a huge chunk of it. And Mayo Clinic, the financial coordinator was like, how are you doing this? I've never, we've never seen any, I'm like, I, I don't know. You know what I mean? Like I, I legitimately do not have an answer for you. I, I never expected this. Yeah. And so it started happening. And then the GoFundMe started coming in and I was able to keep giving it to Mayo Clinic. And then within three months, I hit the amount and they listed me. Fuck. Just like that. Yes, 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 yes. All right. So let's kind of bring it back to your story. Uh, I, I just first have to say, man, you know, after doing all of these podcasts that I've been doing, um, yours by far, it, it just, it blows my mind. I, I know I keep on like repeating myself. I've just never met someone that has been able to fight so fucking hard for something that 
I only hope that people have this ability just to live. I mean, I, I, I mean, Daniel, we, myself, like I've never, I've, I've, we've both gone through stuff, but not what you have gone through on a day to day basis, week by week, month by month, year by year. And at this point, you know, in your story, you're, you're, you're faced with one of the biggest obstacles that anyone could ever face. And it's just such a fucking shame that $250,000 is hanging over your head. It's literally hanging over your head for a life or death decision that you don't even know. I mean, probably at this point, you're not 100% sure if it's even going to fucking work. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, that's the scariest thing. It's like, yeah, I need to get $250,000, but I'm not 100% sure if it's even going to work, but I'm not going to take no for a fucking answer. Yep. And then humanity steps in and starts to really help you out. You, you get that $20,000 check, the, the GoFundMe, then the $100,000 check from your grandma. Um, at this point, where, where are you at mentally? Like, where are you at with the surgery? So I'm ready for it. I'm yeah. like, bring it on. Uh, we need to have this done as soon as possible. The wait list, they said, I'm trying to think exactly what they said. Um, it can be one day. Like you can get a call the next day or it can be up to three years. Fuck. So I was like, oh my goodness. Um, at the same time, I also needed to um, have appointments and it needed to be treated for a couple things. Like I had latent tuberculosis, what? which just means that I had been exposed at some point, but it never manifested. And I, I guess if they test most people would have that. Okay. It was probably because I was a teacher um, yeah. and around the students. And so if they gave me, because um, they would con they would destroy my immune system with the transplant. And uh, by doing that, the tuberculosis would then start forming in my lungs. And so I had to get treated to kill it. And there was a three-month treatment, so I had to have that beforehand. Um, and so, uh, and then I had to have a couple other... Uh, vaccines that were newer. Why? Um, because if you get, if you start, if you catch anything, I think it was like one of the hepatitises and there's just like a few other newer ones that I had n never had before. And so yeah. they wanted to have all of them and then you needed the booster before they would let you have it. Um, is that, is that, sorry to cut you off. Is that weird or is that common for, for transplant patients, yeah. it's that's it's normal. like that's normal. We yeah. know, you need to get all of those. Okay, yeah, you have to have all of them. And so, I was able to do that. And if I hadn't, it was it would risk because the pancreas only transplant is extremely rare. It's it that's why not that many hospitals do it. That's why insurance doesn't really cover it. Um, they do pancreas transplants with other organs very often, okay. um, but the pancreas only transplant is extremely rare. I do believe if the correct statistics can be found yeah. less than a hundred are done per year. Um, and the success rate is between 80 and 85%. So, uh, le less than a hundred are done a year in, and, the, in the United States and then 80 to 85. Wow. Here we go. Um, okay. Yeah. Just point over when you find it, but, um, yeah. And so they don't want to risk anything because a failed transplant for a hospital counts against their numbers, their success numbers. And they don't want that. Cause such bullshit. Yeah. So I was like, okay, like whatever, we'll get it done. Yeah. Um, but while I was having that done, I was able to raise the money that, so like it kind of, 
it, it worked its way in, in, in both ways. But during that time, things got so progressively worse that I couldn't drive anymore. Yeah. Um, I really didn't leave the house. I, uh, I would either um, have things delivered or I'd have someone go pick them up for me because it, it, I couldn't drive. I wasn't okay to go anywhere unless I had people with me. Yeah. And so it, was, it got really lonely and I had to be treated for things. And all I would do is go to doctor's appointments. And then I was looking forward to this time where the transplant could happen because once I was actively listed where I could have the transplant, I could have, get, I could get the call anytime. And so it was one of those things where I was just like, look, I was like, okay, it's there. We, we have the money. We're ready to go. And, and I'm just waiting yes. and, I'm, and I'm doing the treatments. I'm having everything done. And finally, after that, um, it was like that, it was like the, um, the countdown, like it just it begun. It was yes. like, okay, now I'm ready. I had to get my list in order of all the phone numbers in case if my phone didn't go through. There was other people that, that they could call. I had to have um, people who were going to be my support system go to a class, and they all had to be in contact with the transplant center because post-transplant, you really can't do much for six weeks. You got to have someone help take care of you. And so there's like a lot of processing with stuff like that. But other than that, it was just waiting and hoping that that neck low blood sugar wouldn't be the one to kill me after I went through all of that. Yeah, you because you had that two year marker, right? Remember the doctor yep. said. Well, obviously you remember, um, uh, but you had that two year kind of clock ticking down, just ticking away, and then you're waiting. Everything is set up. You're ready to go. When did that call come in? It came in the day after Christmas in, 20, in 2018, December 26, 2018. I got the call and it was from the phone number from the hospital. And I was like, oh, it's from the area code. And I was like, it has to be the hospital. But I was like, no, it can't be. Because it, it had been two months since I was actively listed. And I was like, it can't be. And I answered the phone and they said, is this Brandon? And I said, yeah. <sighs> and they said, are you ready for a new pancreas? And I was like, are you, ki-? I was like, are you kidding me? Cause like who's like I was yeah. like like it sounded like too good to yeah. be true yeah, like, you yeah, know what yeah, I mean yeah. like come on yeah. down come on down are you ready for a new pancreas yeah. yeah and I was like yeah and I was like well it, what's the match because I have O positive blood oh which shit it's one of those um, ones that can't take other matches and so it has to be an exact match with blood type yes. and HLA. Um, which is uh, the blood typing and they need to mix them together. So they would have samples of my blood and sample of the donor blood. And so what they told me is that I needed to get there as soon as possible because there was a possible transplant, meaning that the likelihood of doing the transplant when you get called is like a 50, 50 chance because when the organ actually shows up, there might be something wrong with it or it didn't survive transport or it might not fit in the body correctly. And so you get ready for surgery and then it doesn't happen. So that was kind of what I was expecting. So kind of like every bad thing that has happened to me has happened in near Christmas, you know, here's another thing. And I was like, well, you know, it's probably just not going to happen, but I'm going through it. You know, I'm going to do it. Um, so I got in there and they said, come to the emergency room and tell them you're Brandon and you're here for a transplant. So I walked in there and it was like the doors, I said my name and they said, okay. And like a few seconds later, the back door just like opened and a lady was, there was like, 
these huge doors open <laughs> and a lady was standing there. She's like, Brandon, she's like, okay, let's go. And she starts running down oh the hallway my God. and I'm running and she's like, start taking off your clothes. And I was like, what? Wait, what? Yep. So I started undressing and she goes, okay, go in the bathroom. <laughs> yeah. While I'm running, she goes, go in the bathroom, put this gown on, take off everything. And I go in the room and, and, um, like everything you can possibly think of. They're poking me, they're prodding me, they're asking me questions. They have to take um, a bunch of vials of blood and they're taking like, um, like their uh, Q-tips of all over the body to make sure like the bacteria isn't growing in, in places that, that, that it's going to affect the wow. transplant. And they're just triple checking everything, running that blood. Meanwhile, the assistant surgeons are coming in, the anesthesiologists are coming. All these people are coming in doing all these things to you. And within 20 minutes, I was ready for surgery. Shut the fuck up. Were you nervous? So I, I didn't know what was happening. Like I was just like in shock. And the surgeon who I had the consultation with was this extremely calm, but very, what's the word I'm looking for? She was extremely calm, but like extremely confident. Yeah. And you just knew. Like when you shook her hand, she had this like those surgeon yeah, hands. Yeah. Um, she like you just knew she knew what she was doing, and she walked in the room as all these people were around me. I was asking, you know, multiple people at a time were asking me questions, and I'm answering them. Um, and she just said, "Where's Boone?" No, and she was the the surgeon that I had my consultation with, and that immediately like, just calmed me down. And that was and that was an amazing thing to like to be sitting there and all of a sudden she said that I was like oh my gosh like you're gonna be my surgeon like it, like, it yeah. was meant to be. It's fucking amazing, man. Crazy, huh? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. A hundred and ten percent. A hundred and ten percent. It goes like one of those situations like it meant it was meant to be. <laughs> and so she just said, hey, everything looks good. I'm going to go check the organ one more time, um, but we're taking you into surgery. And meanwhile, I'm sitting there like texting my mom, like they're taking me into surgery. Meanwhile, my mom's in California um, needing to come to uh, Arizona because he's going to be my caretaker. And so she's trying to figure things out. And I really didn't know what was going on. All I knew was I was going into surgery. So I texted her. I was like, hey, they're taking me back into surgery. And then when, when I got into the room, one of the nurses said, okay, you don't have to worry about anything. We have your mom's number. Her name is Tracy, correct? Yeah, What her number is this, correct? Yeah, okay, we're going to be texting her the whole time, letting her know what's going on. Oh, thank goodness. Because I don't want to leave people just like not knowing what's going on. You know? And so I was just like, this is like too, too good to be true. Um, so they wheeled me back and like it was... This ginormously huge surgical room. And I'm used to like surgeries just being out of pain. Um, and like these little cramped rooms and these like just dark and it was like beautiful and like lit. And the surgeons were standing around this stainless steel bowl and I could see the pancreas in it and they were working on it. And I was like, Oh my gosh. And then all my x-rays and scans were up on the wall. My name was written down, blood type, like everything. It was just like everything was meant to be. Um, and the uh, uh, anesthesiologist walked up and he just said, okay, I hope you're ready to start your new life and put me out. Fuck, dude. Fuck. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't even know what to say right now. Yeah, it's crazy. And at the time, it's like you don't even know how to process the emotions and everything that you're going through because it's, it's just like 
there's two crazy things going on. I have this potential at a new life, but it's at the cost of someone losing theirs because <laughs> someone had to die for me to get this organ and it had to be an exact match. And so it's like, good Lord, like, like, you know, there's just so much to process right there. Um, and so I got put out and when I woke up, I wasn't in any pain and I was like, oh, well, I hope that's okay. And there was a nurse sitting next to me and she just said, how are you feeling? And I was like, great. Was it a success? And she says, your current blood sugar is 83. I would consider it a success. And that was the first time that my blood sugar was in a normal range in more than four years. Because you said, what, 80 to 120? It's normal. It's normal. Holy shit. Yeah. And I had been functioning at a, at a low blood sugar of 40 um, for those years. So like it, it, I I felt like Superman waking up. I was like, this is well, this is what normal feels like. <sighs> so, you 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 get out, man. How long was the surgery? I think it was about six hours. And what exactly did they have to do? So they cut you um, from just below. What is this bone called? The sternum. Yeah, just below the sternum. Uh, down straight around the belly button uh, as far as they need to go. And then they, they cut through the skin there, and then they, they um, cut through the muscle and all the layers, and they take your intestines Whoa. out. And then yeah. they put the organ down below the kidneys, um, and mine is on my right side. So it's attached to my small intestines, and then uh, it's fueled by the arteries that run in my legs. Because your wow. actual pancreas is located kind of behind your stomach and your back. And so they leave the old one in yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, And then they put the new one. Um, Wait, they leave the old one in there? They leave the old one in there. So they found out that there's a better success rate at leaving the old one in there because it's non-functional anyways. Yeah. Because it's too much of a shock to the body to remove. To remove it. Wow. So they leave it in there and they put the new one in. And uh, yeah, so that's where it's at. It's It's below my kidneys on my my kidney on my right um attached to my small intestines and it's attached to the arteries in my leg did you ever uh find out who who's 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 it was i have not yet so the way that works is you have to go through a third party system okay and you can request to know who it is um and you can write a letter like it, it's really done it's supposed to be done completely anonymously um yeah. and some people want to know and some people don't i haven't reached the point where i want to know who that is yet yeah i get that um and i don't and i don't know the situation on their end either um but i i do i at one point i think i will reach that element where i want to know because i there's a lot of things that i need to give um i'm just not there yet jesus man (laughs) so you uh you go through that whole process. You go through that whole process. What does life look like on the other side? So the first day, so I went into surgery at about 10 o'clock at night. So that first day was like recovery. I, like I, I remember most of it, but it's, it's pain medicine. Yeah. Every 10 minutes, there's a person, I'm in the ICU, there's a person testing your blood. I have um, a... I have an 
Oh, I forget what it's called. Anyways, it's connected to my artery and my neck, and it's connected to everything that like tricked. Yeah, well, whatever. Then, no, I not, guess that's not quite tricked, but it's it's so like they can um, instead of a pick line that okay. goes to your heart, it's in your neck, yeah. and it can tell your blood pressure. It, it can tell a lot of things instead of connecting you to things. Also, yeah. they can draw your blood through it and all that kind of stuff, yeah. and they put it in during surgery. So every ten minutes, there's a person sitting there testing my blood, and, and every single time, it's coming it's coming back regular and again it's the first time I've ever, I've ever felt a normal blood sugar in years and so it just it felt wonderful yeah. um meanwhile i'm not in pain here i just had all these things removed from my body a new organ put in everything put back in um stitched back together stapled um and i'm not in any pain and so that first day was kind of like that little recovery bit and then the next day, everyone came and visited me. So it's like, it's December 28th, and the financial coordinator is one of the first people to come and see me. And she told me, she goes, you know, I have been rooting for you this entire time. Um, and she said, I knew that you would have the transplant before the end of this year. And I didn't go on vacation because you're the only cash patient we have right now. And I knew that what would happen is they would check to see insurance and it would show that you didn't have insurance so that you weren't paid and then they wouldn't call you. And so the organ would go to someone else. So I didn't go on vacation to make sure that didn't happen. Are you serious? No, I'm not. I am I am dead I serious. I know you are. But it's, like, it's crazy because God. it's like all these people knew stuff that I didn't. You know what I mean? Like, And she also said that around the holidays is a very um, higher time. Um, for transplants to happen because that's when people drink and they drive and you know they do dumb things and they yeah. and they get in trouble and so um she said i knew it was going to happen and so I, I wanted to make sure and it's true because when they called me um we were going through everything and they said what's your insurance and i said well i paid cash does it say that no it doesn't and so i had to tell them to please call um the financial coordinator and they did and they said okay she confirmed that everything is good to go and had she been on vacation it would not have happened and so she was the first to be there and and like they always tell you the first thing i i realized is they say congratulations so everyone walks in the room and they say hey, congratulations and i'm just like thank you like what does that mean so it's like like congratulations on your transplant right yeah. and so she's like congratulations and she's like what are you going to do with your new life and i'm just like i don't know like get back to it and she's yes. like hey you got to find out like what you want to do and go and do it because you've been given a second chance and i'm just like good lord like i have you know yeah. um then other doctors came through and they checked like your kidney function all that kind of stuff then the surgeon came in and she was like everything went great and she said everyone's going to take care of you well but the advice i want to leave you with is to go and live the best life you can. It's fucking facts. And that came from a surgeon. You know what I mean? Like she, she didn't even look at um, my wounds or anything like that. Cause she's like, they're taking care of it. I just wanted to come and check on you. And um, yeah, like just go live life. And so that is kind of what I took from it. And um, that was what was recovery was a, a lot. Like it was like a celebratory thing of I don't have to worry about these low blood sugars right now. And I'm going to take life as it is for every moment. And uh, so every day is something that I look forward to because I didn't have that opportunity before. 
And now I do. Yeah, you do. You definitely do. Oh, man. So um, you go through all that. You're going through. You get out. What what happened when you got out? How long were you in the hospital? I think it was four nights. Okay. Um, they needed to make sure that you were off of like the drip pain meds. Yeah. Um, I wasn't in a lot of pain. If I moved around too much, it would it would be painful just because of all the muscles. Um, and I needed to be able to walk, and so like we walked, and we, I, we did everything, and then it would be for the first two weeks. Um, every day at the hospital for labs and an appointment where they would just check and make sure everything is working and then they adjust medication accordingly because immediately your body starts to reject the organ because it's something foreign inside of it. And so you need to take medication for the rest of your life to prevent that rejection from happening, whether it be from your body or from something um, happening um, like a disease or a virus or a fungus that needs to be watched. And so those levels can get toxic and it can cause kidney failure and it can cause other things. So it needs to be watched very carefully. Um, And so the first two weeks was about every day or every other day. And then until the six week mark, it was three days a week. I would go in for labs and be seen by the doctor. And um, at five weeks I hit uh, my first rejection. Um, so, the, like? so the labs came back, uh, not good. <laughs> they look at these, these, so your pancreas, if you have a functioning pancreas, it produces two, um, enzymes and it's called amylase and lipase. And so that's what they look at to see how well your pancreas is functioning. And the numbers were extremely elevated, meaning your body is fighting the organ. And so they need to do a biopsy. So you go in and you get numbed up and they, shove a thing the size of a pencil through you to get, to get a chunk of the organ out. And then, um, they test it to see like how severe it is. And, um, then you go in, um, for IV infusions. And I went in, I think for five days. Um, and then from there you taper yourself off of, uh, steroids cause it's supposed to, um, get rid of inflammation and then they retest everything and then do another biopsy. So the first time we kind of, it was fine, but we upped the anti-rejection meds and then it happened again three weeks later where I went, went through it again. And I was like, well, you know, like what's going on? And so they're like, it it happens. You know, this is a delicate organ. Anything can be bothering it. Um, And so it was like, in terms of doctoring, it was a lot because I was there. I was in the hospital a lot. I was in the clinics a lot. I was getting a lot of blood work done. And, um, it's definitely a great hospital. They did they did it really well for me. Um, but after being in Arizona for that long, um, and when I hit the six-month mark post-transplant, um, I needed to get out of Arizona. It, yeah. It's not, that's not the, it was, eh, too many bad things had happened there, um, and I needed to uh, get out. Yeah. So then came the um, situation of me finding another uh transplant clinic that would take me on as a patient and uh here in southern california uh cedar sinai um took me on ucla wouldn't um there's a few other ones that didn't really want to take me on because they didn't do the transplant because it's such a delicate organ 
that if it fails, they don't want it to count against them. Such a bullshit. Yeah. Such bullshit. So I'm currently Cedar sinai's only, pancreas-only transplant patient. Are you serious? Yeah. That oh, my gosh. With. So I went into mild rejection again, like, when I moved. And so I think it's real related to stress in some way a little bit. Um, but we changed medications and got that under control. And so I'm closely monitored. Every two weeks I have blood work. I have an appointment uh, every month. And we keep a really close eye on that. And the medication changes almost with every time we get blood work. Because sometimes it's too high and then I'm toxic and then it's too low and then it's going to go into rejection. And so it's all about keeping that level um, within a therapeutic range. Yeah. Um, and the goal is uh, to keep it the same for three months and then they kind of will start spreading out the appointments and stuff like that. But I haven't been, you haven't hit that. Three I, haven't, I haven't hit that three month mark yet. How do you feel on a day to day basis? Most of the time I feel mentally, I am ready to conquer the world. Yeah. Physically. Um, I, I can keep up, but my Mine thinks a little bit bigger than what my body is capable of. So I can go, um, like I can go do things. Like if uh, you were like, hey, let's go on a hike. Yeah, let's go do it. But my body takes a little bit longer to recover because okay. of how much it's been through. Um, I have 31 years as a type one diabetic. I have all that damage done on my body. And now I'm on these rejection meds, which eat away your muscles, aid, um, dissolve bones um like there's it and because i have no immune system everything takes longer so it takes longer to heal and and all that kind of stuff so um my brain is ready to conquer the world my body is is trying to keep up with my brain but i feel good um some days i wake up and it's just one of those days where the side effects of everything have the power over me and that's when i'm thankful just to be alive yes and i just use that day to recover um and then move forward from it. But right now it, it's all about making sure that all of that, that what I went through was a success. Yeah. Like I'm not taking any risks, um, unnecessary risks to jeopardize the transplant. Um, I also not living at life as a bubble boy. You know what I mean? Yeah, like I'm trying yeah. to live life um, and not be a bubble boy. So it's like that in between part. I get that. Um, and so that's kind of what life is like. It, it, I, not having hypoglycemia is one of the greatest blessings. Um, I took life for granted way too much because um, I was able to control my diabetes very fairly easily with insulin. And when I couldn't anymore, you kind of, you quickly realize what you take for granted, and then um, the times where I should have died, I didn't, and like everything that happened as it was it, it, like the, what isn't just per happenstance. Like I, I was at the right place at the right time, whatever, you know, whatever was involved, how to have been involved um, and all of that kind of stuff. And so like my perspective on everything in, in life has changed because of that. Like how I think about people, what I think about people, um, how I value life and my time and what I'm willing to offer um, myself and society and just all that kind of stuff because I've been around the block a time or two. <laughs> yes, you <laughs> and, have. And it, and, um, none of it, none of it has worked. And so now I'm kind of just going with the flow and going to figure life out because I'm not going to make any hard, die hard plans because at any point something can go wrong. 
And so I'm just going to enjoy the time that I have right now until I can have a bigger goal and work towards that. Um, and I will do that as soon as I know that, okay, they consider this a successful transplant. It's not in rejection anymore. I've reached that three month mark in a row and then I can kind of plan bigger things. Yeah. But for now it's staying closer to home. It's enjoying the time that I have and just not seeing myself as this victim who's been through these things. Um, and, finding ways to give back because people helped me in my, in my biggest time of need. And yeah. at the time there was not a lot of information um, about what I went through because it's, it's a really rare thing. And so now I try to provide information for other people and educate people on everything that's been going on. Not that, Oh, people are uneducated. It's like, <laughs> no, this is a super rare situation is. that is applicable to me, but there are a lot of lessons that are applicable to everybody. So um, many. And so I'm kind of helping uh, myself and I, and I think other people by doing that as well. And I, I can only hope. And so that's kind of like where I'm at in life right now. Words can't even express how I feel right now. I mean, I just, I am so blown away by your determination to live life, but to live life on your standards, you're not willing to give up. You're not willing to stop. You didn't take no for an answer. You know, a lot of times when we have hard things pressed against us in our life, um, we have that fight or flight syndrome. We either go fucking through it or we turn around and go the opposite way. And unfortunately, a lot of people turn around and go the opposite way. And so when you say that as soon as you get past this hurdle, this three-month hurdle, you're going to fucking go for I believe it. I feel it. I've never been in a podcast where I'm talking to someone and I'm crying my fucking eyes out because I feel your energy, your presence, everything that you went through. I can't even fathom that. But you're here today with a smile on your face, sharing your story, your, your everything. And so when people listen to this, they're going to take bits and pieces of it and it's going to make them better people because if Brandon can do it, anyone can do it. And yeah. I mean that with my fucking heart, my soul, every, everything. Am I correct? Like, it's just, I, I think you've had us all bawling in this room Yeah, because of not for any other sheer fact other than get up and do what you need to do. Uh, and, and fight for life because I think what you've realized is through your fight, through your journey, uh, that's where the beauty came. It, it wasn't. It, it wasn't. Oh, it was just wonderful. It was. It was because it was so down and dirty. Is what on the other side of it was this beautiful piece that I'm so. I, I felt that journey through what you were saying. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And it's not like a. It's not like a woe is me story no. or it's not like a look no. at me story that I, this is something that a lot of people don't want to tell because if they've gone through it, it it's their, it's their journey. You yeah. know what I mean? But because mine, um, I had to make very public, um, yeah. and a lot of people reached out to me and stuff like that. Uh, it's now, 
my time to share what I've been through yes. to help give back. You know, I've been given the second chance at life. And if other people can understand like how important organ donation is or how important it is to have access to insulin to save your life or healthcare and not have to raise $250,000 for life-saving surgery or something that is required for them to live. If I can bring any awareness to any of that, that is what I hope that what I've been through can do. Um, and just me sharing my story right now, like, you know, like you're helping me provide a platform to share all of that, which is awesome. So thank you. Absolutely. No, 110%, man. I, I, I didn't understand the depth of everything that you went through, but after going, you know, to your website and your Instagram and just reading up a little about you, I was like, I need to speak to him. I have to talk to him. I want him to come on the podcast to share his personal story and then you coming here and I, I, I couldn't have even fathomed or I couldn't even imagine um, being in your situation. Like, I, I can't. But this isn't a woe me story. This isn't a poor me story. This is a story of fight, survival, and showing people that if anything is faced against you, it doesn't matter if it's the biggest fucking mountain in the world. We have the ability to defeat it and climb over that mountain. And you have proven that. And, and you're still on that journey. And so now you're, you're, you're on this mission. And what does this, what, what, once you hit that three-month goal, right? Once you hit, what is this next chapter of your life going to look like? Given, <laughs> given everything that's going on in the current world, yes, those, um, yeah. things are going to have to change a little bit. but. Yeah. There's a lot that I put on hold to, like I had this great childhood, you know what I mean? And then I went to work and I always put work first. And then I, and I always was trying to climb the ladder and make more money. Now it's all about the quality of life. Um, and I need to find out what that, what that quality means to me right now. It's enjoying nature and playing in the ocean and, uh, finding the things that that I enjoy, um, but in, but in, when I hit that three month mark, it, it, I don't really know. Um, I want to go see the world, but I need to be able to afford it. I want to go and uh, talk to people, but I need to be able to have a platform to, to be able to. Like, there's a lot of things that I want to do, but it all depends on the situation and and when it happens. And so when it happens. Um, those are just things that I kind of, uh, think about in my head and it can change at any time. And I think that's kind of the nice thing about where I'm at right now with life is anything can happen and I'm kind of okay with it Yes, because, um, it's not like I, I won't, it's not like if I'm going down a path I don't enjoy, I can't change it. And, um. it, and it's not like if I find something that I really enjoy that I can't keep doing it so it's kind of anything is possible yeah. and i think that's the amazing thing about going through that with an outcome that you're okay with is that now you know or like now i know that anything can happen and yeah. um <laughs> never never expect uh the expected because no, you never know you never know what's going to happen yes you need to start a podcast my friend you need, no, no, I'm dead serious. You what need. What I'm most excited about yeah. is that you don't have to survive life anymore, but you get to thrive. Yes. Yeah. That's exactly. What I'm most yeah. Excited about for you. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Yeah.
Yeah. Yes. You need to share your story. I mean, you came on here and shared your story, but you need to share it with more people. You, you need to start a podcast. You're doing your platform with, with social media and that will continue to grow. Um, but it would be amazing if you had a podcast where you brought on people, uh, with, with similar and different stories of, you know, fight and survival, um, and, and connecting with those people. Fuck. I would listen to it and tons of people listen to it and, and, and just get your story out there more and more. Um, and, and I appreciate you making the drive and the trek up here to do this. Um, as you know, with your low immune system, right. With COVID and everything like that, how does that affect everything? Your, your day-to-day life and, um, you know, I, what, what's your thought? Yeah. So at first it was, like what the hell is going on? Yes. And no one knew what was going on. And no. so the opinion of the, I was, so in March when everything kind of was happening, I was in Arizona <laughs> uh, <laughs> visiting Mayo Clinic. And they were like, eh, you know, I, I, I was told from the hospital that I needed to wear my mask um, when I was in public, when I was in groups of people. So I was at Disneyland. I was at um, Knott's Berry Farm. I'd be at concerts. Wherever I went, I'd wear a mask. Yeah. And so they're like, take those precautions and um, just be extra careful. Now, um, Cedar sinai who I talked to on Friday, they're like, just, you know, be extra careful. They don't know what to really say yeah. um, or what is the appropriate thing for people to do. So I talked to other people and some people live life in a bubble as much as they can. Some people don't care yeah. about it. I try to f- live that happy medium where yes. I, I, I do, I don't mind wearing my mask. I've been to a lot of places um, recently that all involved outdoors. I really wasn't around yeah. people, but I need to go to the grocery store. So I wear a mask and I put on gloves and I go in there. That's, yes. you know, that's the, that's the best I can do. Yeah. And so um, there's been a few transplant patients that have died from it and they don't know directly what it's from, but COVID definitely was a start of it. Yeah. And um, it, it doesn't scare me, but Good. it's definitely an issue that's going on. Um, we don't have enough information yeah. um, about it to be certain, but I know that if anything, if I get any symptoms of anything, where to go, um, I know what to do and I will cross that bridge when I get there, but yeah. I, I'm not going to live in fear and I'm not going to shame people for doing things and for yes. not doing things. And, um, so I just kind of, I live my life with, with it and I just, um, alter my life accordingly. Yeah. And I don't mind, um, going down a different aisle in a grocery store if there's too many people, you know, I get there, that. and, yeah. um, wiping things down with, with, uh, my sanitizer wipes and stuff like yes. that. It's just, it's an extra precaution that makes me feel better whether or not it does anything. Absolutely. No, when you came in here, you did the same thing that you wiped everything down. And I'm, I was like, I sprayed everything down with Lysol, which I do. I keep a thing of Lysol here just out of respect for people. Right. But I totally get it, man. Like you, you're taking the steps to be safe, but at the same time, you got to live your fucking life. Yep. Right. You can't live your life in a bubble. Right. And so it's like the mask thing. Like, yeah, absolutely. I 110% get it. Um, and you, this, 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 this is just, I don't want to say it's the beginning of your story, but it is. It's like the next chapter of your story, but yeah. the beginning. You have like two beginnings, and this is that next beginning. 
And I, I'm just so honored to have you sit here in front of me. And I mean that with all, every ounce of my body, um, seeing what you've gone through, making it on the other side. And it's still, you know, life's never a hundred percent sure. Right. Yep. But where you are at today compared to a year ago, the year before that, the year before that, um, it inspires the fuck out of me. And I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for coming on here and sharing your story. Um, as we start to wrap this up, um, is there anything that you want to ask? Um, <laughs> you have me speechless. Yeah. Uh, I think you've, you've- For sure. Yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate you too. Absolutely. Yeah. You, I mean, thank you for, again, I mean, I can't, I don't have a story to share unless there's a place to share it, you know, and I, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to share it because anyone from any walk of life, um, I think can use a little motivation. So please you use my journey as a little motivation, um, in your life. And that's kind of what I hope by sharing my journey, um, can do where, um, where if people listen, right, where can they, uh, what's your social media and what's your website? Um, just go to my website. It's Brandon Mao. My last name is spelled M for Mary O-U-W, BrandonMao.com. Um, all my information is on there. I'm most active on Instagram, but if you message me anywhere, I will respond. Um, it's just my my journey of what I've been through. And and um, I I every anything that I put on there is a uh, blog post and it's a uh, something that kind of tells you about my journey and it kind of helps put things in perspective. Um, and that's, I just am sharing my journey on there, especially because I had to make it public. Um, (laughs) it was way easier to put it on social media than it was for me to answer a hundred texts a day. I get that. I trust me. Yes, 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 yes. Um, man, when things calm down, I am, so I will for, for sure. I mean, businesses need to bring you on for inspiration. Uh, you just, I, I, there's, there's just so many amazing things that you offer this world. And I'm so excited to see what these next, you know, years look like for you. So this is not going to be the last time we have you on the podcast. I appreciate you once again, from the bottom of my heart for coming on the story or for coming on back to your story. And, um, yeah, man. Keep rocking, bro. Love it. Thank you so much. Absolutely. All right, all right, all right. Thank you so much for listening to Back to Your Story. Have a good night, people. Peace. Wowzers. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. I really want to thank Brandon for coming on to share his story. I cannot believe what he went through. Uh, To this day, I think about him every single day, like literally every single day. I think about this young man's fight and courage to just fucking do it. 
and just to live life to the fullest. And that's really what we want, regardless of what we're going through, regardless of everything going on in your life. If you have the ability to push through and stand up above it and say, no, I am better than this and I will not give up. I will not stop. That is what we all want to live a good life, to live a good life on our own terms, to do the things that we want, to do the things that we need to make ourselves better and to continue to push through. And regardless, with this ticking time bomb always faced in front of us called death, we have to be able to push through. Please take Brandon's story to heart, treasure it, and understand that, you know what? Everyone's life is different. We all have a story but we need to come together at the end. I really want to thank him. And if you guys and girls, if you do enjoy liking this podcast or listening to this podcast, please like, subscribe, leave a review. And if you have not had a chance to check out our YouTube page, use this link, bit.ly backslash B-T-Y-S-2. Once again, that's bit.ly backslash B-T-Y-S-2. That is in all capitals. All right, thank you so much. Have a great night, people. And remember, new stories premiere every single week. Smooches!